Thanks. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I, we do need to open this session at, with a roll call, and then we will proceed to close session. Uh, so uh, can we have the roll? Oh, hold on. You don't okay. need to sit down. Trustee <laughs> Bellagy? back into open session. Good morning. Um, I know there's a bunch of people behind me. It's hard to speak into the mic and to them at the same time, but good morning. Um, so, uh, first item out of closed session uh, is my report on action taken in closed session. Um, there were no actions taken in closed session, which I know may be surprising considering how long we were in there, but it's actually true. Um, I am going to uh, do two things. One, I'm going to change the agenda. We're going to move the compliance exercise to after uh, we hear from our providers because I want to keep on time for them because they've taken time out of their day to be here at the time we asked. And I also want to just say as far as item C, my retreat update, um, I, I don't have an update to give. I want to get right to our providers. And so that actually puts us right on time for our provider core, um, I believe. And um, with that, Taft, I'm going, pardon me, Trustee Bouquet, uh, I'm going to turn it over to you. Oh, hey, you. Okay. Um, unless, actually, I realized that we, we were supposed to have a break, and the providers were starting at 1040, uh, and we're actually, that would actually put us ahead of time, but um, should, we, should we go? I, I, uh, Dr. Hearn? Uh, sir. Uh, there, are, there are more physicians coming. Yeah. Oh, should should we should, should we do the compliance exercise yeah, first? Sure. There are, so, if uh, based on the, uh, the agenda that I was aware of, I mean, there are other reports before the open session. Yeah. There, so, Dr. Martin, oh. I believe, has a okay. Oh, the medical staff report. Yeah, yeah. So, so oh, okay. the dialogue kind of actually, actually happens, and there was a okay, great. There was a slight little adaptation that that, that the chiefs of staff. We're given, I think, an additional 15 minutes on the uh, in, on the Great. amended agenda. Great, right. So, so perhaps we could do that. Again, I'm I'm turning the reins over to you, Dr. Bouquet. Uh, they, they should never be mine. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Uh, so we'll go into chief of staff report. Okay. Sorry to throw you guys right on the spot, <laughs> but you're on. <laughs> and good morning. And good morning. <laughs> Medical staff uh, met and uh, discussed a few issues, um, mainly a discussion involved around uh, the emergency room transition, and I gave a detailed report on the QPSC on that one. We identified challenges with uh, with the transition, and uh, fortunately, we've had some good engagement with with the current uh, ED physicians that are staffing uh, Alameda Hospital with uh, the OCARE Medical Group. 
Um, and the points that were um, of concern was the uh, medical director for emergency room, which we have identified now and are in currently engaged with some issues that we are um, fixing with some challenges that we have. So that's mainly the, um, the discussion that we had on our um, uh, med staff meeting. We also were made aware and were ha so happy that the, uh, the Alameda Hospital's Marina Village Primary Clinic is now ongoing with the physician there that's seeing uh, patients. And um, uh, basically, you know, that's the, the general um, up updates on, on my report. Thank you. Ed Ford, any questions? Uh, congratulations on the primary care clinic. And I also understand we're now part of network. I hope the providers are feeling good about that yes, as well. Yes, yeah. So Anthem is, uh, has finally been uh, effective May 1st. OK. Right. Thank you. Uh, I'm happy to jump into uh, my report. My microphone, mic, please. yeah, it's oh, make sorry. sure everyone can hear. Absolutely, sorry about that. Thank you. I'm happy to jump into my report uh, for uh, uh, Highland John George Fairmont Ambulatory Wellness. We continue our uh, our march uh, towards the Epic Integrated uh, Record. We have a number of uh, training positions which are filled, and a number of representatives from each department um, who are known as the, the core representatives who are interfacing with uh, the EPIC project. Um, and uh, they are in the process of moving that forward. Um, in addition, the Clinical Standardization for Excellence project has also unified a lot of the order sets, and we've been very happy with that process so far. In addition, um, the medical staff is participating in the, a training required by the state called, um, from SB 1299. Um, and it's a Calosha project for workplace violence prevention. And so um, it's, it's basically a, a really well-developed training that has been uh, placed on our internet for all of the providers to, to do. And I believe we have uh, two to three months to complete it, but it's apparently, a, 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 I have not completed it myself, um, but I've been told it's a good, uh, it's a good module about uh, workplace violence. Um, a couple of things that I had mentioned at the QPSC meeting. Um, the, we've had continued excellent engagement and focus uh, by our wellness task force on uh, provider well-being and uh, wellness um, for programs supporting our caregivers. Uh, we had an excellent um, discussion with uh, Adrian Smith uh, from RISC about the care of the caregiver and second victim projects uh, that are sponsored through Beta Health, uh, our uh, insurer, and compliance with these actually gives us a significant discount for our uh, our malpractice insurance. So care of the caregiver is one of five um, main pillars, if you will, for sort of decreasing uh, uh, a pathway to decrease our malpractice premiums. But what it does, though, is it helps to support our caregivers uh, when bad things happen. So if there's a bad outcome, uh, whether or not um, it was iatrogenic, like a, a medication error, or uh, even if there wasn't a medical error, that outcome still affect providers, decrease performance. Um, you know, a trauma that is uh, that had a traumatic patient, for instance, uh, yesterday that had an absolutely non-survivable injury, is still 
a traumatic experience, not only for all the patients, um, but all of the providers. Uh, and delivering that news to the family is a very traumatic event as well. Um, and so the Care of the Caregiver Project is something that uh, the Wellness Task Force is taking very seriously to get on board and, and provide basically peer counseling uh, for people after the fact, um, not only sort of in real time, but sort of an ongoing basis, like checking in with them. Because when your providers are burned out and they leave, that actually costs the system a lot of money. Um, either in uh, decreased productivity, but also decreased quality. People who are distracted and burned out have more medication errors, um, and it's well documented in a lot of literature that medication errors and, uh, and other um, medical errors are related to burnout, sleep deprivation, uh, and, uh, and lack of wellness. So the Wellness Task Force is very excited to sort of continue with that. We've had very productive uh, discussions with Dr. Jamaldi um, about uh, wellness counseling resources and, and, uh, and Nick Perny as well. We're, we're trying to come up with a model. Um, as I mentioned before, uh, a couple months ago, I did a presentation on physician suicide and, um, and proposed a 1.0 uh, FTE. And, we scaled back that uh, proposal in light of the, the financial, current financial situation, but we're hoping to get a, a 0.5 FTE to help uh, sort of address some of those ongoing needs. So we're, we're very excited by that, that uh, wellness discussion. Um, our medical staff is still in, uh, involved in ongoing conversations about current structure and formation of, of AHP and medical staff unification. Uh, we'll be hearing more about that later today, I'm assuming. Um, and finally, uh, two other things. We've, uh, we've had ongoing discussions about our surge plan, um, and I've mentioned that in the last few months we've been in uh, code red or a, a score red uh, very, very uh, more frequently than we would like. Um, but what's interesting is that we've decided that, that is, that's a great first step and it really focuses on emergency department overcrowding. That's the score. The NEDOX score is emergency overcrowding. But in fact, hospital overcrowding has a lot of other factors. And in May, we're going to start opening up that process again to look at um, overcrowding in the PACU. Um, and we shared a, a story of a patient who was in the PACU for five days um, with the lights on 24-7, sort of ambient noise and no private bathroom. And, uh, and, and Nick just told me he's had, we've had a number of total hips that were discharged from the PACU and actually never made it to a, to a bed because there weren't beds to put them in. Um, so overcrowding is not only an ER issue, it's a PACU issue, um, and it's a placement issue. So we're really excited to sort of open up that discussion about the surge process um, in a couple weeks. There's a meeting, I believe, May 7th um, to sort of address the, the overall hospital overcrowding issue. So, and then finally, last month we had our Department of Radiology report from uh, Dr. Yasumoto talking about the system-wide approach to, to radiology, and we're really excited. Um, they've had a, a great expansion. Um, and I think they've done a, a fantastic job, and, uh, and so we've been very fortunate to, to have an excellent radiology group um, that has uh, that has been incredibly productive, and we're looking forward to their new uh, their new MRI machines um, and other technology, which is which will allow them um, even more capacity. Um, that's my report. Any questions? Um, I do uh, on the the overcrowding issue. So first, is there an industry standard that you'll apply to looking at at, at Highland? And second, will that come back to QPSC? Yes, we assume it will come back to QPSC. I'm not a, I'm not a hospital overcrowding expert. The expert, the, the industry standard for emergency department overcrowding is this NEDOC score, mm -hmm. um, and it's well validated and, and, and sort of used throughout the country. Um, but we uh, we assume that in this in this larger discussion of PACU and, and ED overcrowding, that, that we will have industry standards. I'm, I'm just not aware. We we have uh, nationally. Uh, reportable throughput metrics related to the emergency departments in addition to our like average length of stay. 
So there are throughput uh, metrics that we report in the acute care SBU for our three acute facilities. And then we'll all come back to QPSC. Yes. yes. Great. Okay. Yes. Is there any connection to the wellness committee and the peer review process? Are, are there are there any links to those two? You know, what's interesting is that there. Um, yes and no. The peer review process can refer providers to uh, the well. There's there are two committees really. There's a wellness task force which focuses globally on wellness uh, for providers. There's a separate committee that's a med staff committee called the Well Being Committee, um, which is more specifically um, behavioral issues, substance abuse, uh, which is a much more sort of focused uh, approach. But um, clearly, we hope that the peer review uh, the peer review process can will. So that's a source for the peer through the peer review process. That's that's a part of that source. Just through the peer review process, you can recommend. That, that uh, providers go through those committees. Uh -huh. can, can I ask that we all um, get our mics closer to our mouths? And uh, it's, I'm, if I'm having a hard time hearing people, I guarantee the people in the back are. So, uh, what I hear is that the wellness, the the well-being piece is more the resiliency kind of piece, and the other piece that I, I don't know if, if Michelle is re referring to is more professional satisfaction and. Uh, you know, professional fulfillment kind of Right, there's, there's clearly a combination. Um, the well-being committee is, is much more focused on behavioral issues, like specific, um, uh, put it this way, the well-being committee is retroactive, mm -hmm. where something happens and then somebody gets referred to it. I think the wellness task force is much more uh, proactive, looking at, you know, practice efficiency systems, you know, personal resilience, as well as a culture of wellness that the, that the institution has taken on to more actively engage providers and, and, and build up their resiliency, whereas well-being is more after the fact when something happens, like, mm, we need to take a look at individual actions, behavior, professionalism. And, and, and is that well, the, the well, not the well-being, the, the other the wellness task force. The wellness task force. Um, is that a requirement of physicians to to be? I, I suppose you know I'm always looking at at uh, rather than remediation prevention and linking the peer review process to being able to make certain that people are taking advantage of opportunities. I think those. Th there's a better connection then as opposed to the remediation of when a problem occurs. So I just, that's what, that's Absolutely. what raised my curiosity. Exactly. Um, so the wellness task force, the idea is to make things easy, accessible, and universal. So, you know, they, uh, so we have, we have a, a subcommittee that's working on sort of regular monthly or bi-monthly talks that can be, that are going to, the plan is to broadcast them to anyone, to all the wellness centers, as well as people can be at their desk eating lunch and hear these wellness talks. In addition, having this wellness counselor that is available to all campuses, um, and just to make it easier and to make it more, um, more, uh, yeah, accessible. And, and how are you going to collect the data to show which, how many people are, are participating in that process? Well, uh, part of it is going to be, so wellness counseling will clearly have a lot of metrics associated with them in an anonymous fashion. Like, we, all the data shows that the people who access wellness counselors are interns and second-year residents. That's the preponderance. Um, but we assume that it'll be over the entire spectrum of providers. Uh, and 
so that as well as attendance, and we can check to see how many people are downloading the stream um, and sort of keep an eye on, on, on how that progresses over time. Thank you. Is there, is there also a well-meaning committee? A well-meaning committee. <laughs> We're all part of the well-meaning under the same uh, uh, medical group, uh, which is all care. And we have uh, identified an ED director. And, and right now, uh, we're working uh, diligently, uh, working on, on a matrix such as uh, leave without being seen and time to pro providers. Uh, as during the transition, those matrix has uh, uh, it's been challenging, and it's, it has been improving. And uh, also, we had a presentation from uh, Alameda Health Foundation. Uh, they have uh, three events. Uh, I think one has passed already in, uh, uh, this I think was last Thursday. But uh, there was uh, two other events that's coming up. Uh, that's uh, June 2nd, uh, Gala, and also a uh, golf uh, benefit uh, in September. And uh, some of the proceeds are going directly to uh, benefit uh, San Leandro Hospital on, on new uh, infrastructure and uh, capital uh, expenditure. So I'll be working now with the uh, foundation uh, chairman, uh, Mr. David, uh, in uh, cleaning up foundation, and I hope uh, the trustee would uh, attend also. And uh, that's it for my uh, report. Any questions? Thank you. Questions? Well, has the, the construction impacted you? No, I not. not. Uh, the building doesn't shake sometimes? I, I haven't noticed. <laughs> <laughs> we are on the ground floor, so hopefully not. Fair enough. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. With that, we go into our next segment? Yes, sir. All right. Um, uh, as uh, the board uh, moves into the next segment, I want to thank the board. I want to thank the uh, agenda committee. Uh, I want to thank all the providers and colleagues who, who've shown up. I always like to first talk about design elements. So I want to talk about the design elements behind this section and kind of give us a, a one-minute walkthrough of what, what, we, what we should expect. I believe that uh, it's not a false statement to say that the health, the success of our organization 
will in large part be a function of the success of our providers. Our providers are the primary drivers of quality and revenue generation, and uh, well, as well as the executors of care, which occur in our system. So I think it's important that we focus on them uh, for our success. So the design of this session is, is really to help the Board of Trustees understand key aspects of our provider landscape. This, this segment's entitled the AHS Provider Landscape. The, with this information, we hope that an informed, productive, and strategic dialogue can occur. Uh, so the, the, the purpose here is for dialogue, not just reporting out. We have, uh, so the first segments here will be to inform us of what we need to go about. There, there are a number of segments which I'm going to walk you uh, through. First, we're going to uh, be uh, introduced to an overview snapshot of basically the system's provider core. This will be given by our chief medical officer, Dr. Jamaladine, right there. In this, I want us to understand the landscape, where the doctors are, how they're organized, what, what are the complexities behind this. Dr. Jamaladine oversees a very complex component of our organization in our provider core. He'll do that for about half an hour, and uh, of course, I, I, I encourage the board to write down questions because that's part of the design I'm on here, is for us to be uh, provoked into understanding what the right questions are. The second element of, of, of our morning will be a discussion by Dr. Nick Pernia, the president of Alameda Health Partners. He's right back there. Welcome, Nick. He's going to be giving us an overview. We've been talking about Alameda Health Partners going on seven to eight years in this organization, and there have been some growing elements. It's, I, I, I still call it a, a nascent organization. It's still trying to get its legs about it, but there are some very interesting points of discussion, and Nick will inform us about that so we can be a little bit better armed to ask the questions and to help guide our, our, our provider core towards success. After that, there will be a 30-minute public comment section. Um, uh, the, the, the chiefs of staff uh, have been organizing with um, uh, elements within our, within our medical corps. I, I call this kind of a meet and greet for the Board of Trustees to help us sort of understand elements within, within our provider corps. And I think there's going to be some really inspirational stuff in there. There's the opportunity to not be some inspirational stuff. But we want to have that dialogue. We'll have a little bit of a break, and then we'll close out with board discussion. It's just entitled board discussion. This is the hope uh, to be the meat of this, of this agenda topic, which will be armed by the first three elements that I just talked to you about. Um, I, I'm going to steal from Nick's uh, slides and use the word mosaic. I haven't used that in a while. But we do have a mosaic of, of, of pro, uh, provider uh, contracting and organization and like. I want the board to kind of have a feel for that mosaic. So I, I, I've offered opportunity for, for uh, uh, elements of the, those mosaic pieces to come and speak. Uh, I've already armed them knowing that th this should be a very small and short introduction. And again, the whole purpose here is to inspire dialogue between the administration and the board, the board and the physicians, and all the way around. So I, I, I would like this to invite dialogue and, and even, if okay, I, uh, to invite providers to even ask questions of us. Um, uh, I'll, I'll let council uh, tell me whether that, that is appropriate or not. That is the design. Um, and uh, with that, uh, any questions before we jump in? I, I do have one uh, thought, and maybe unorthodox, but when we get to the public comment section, would it, and we won't be having a PowerPoint, right. but it makes sense to actually 
allow our providers to bring their chairs up to there so we can look at each other instead of that would be beautiful yeah, i don't think there's anything in brown which uh, this allows i don't think so either so so like let's let's do that yeah so so this 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 is for key elements of this organization administration the board and our providers to get to know each other a little bit so we can ask the good and 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 sometimes challenging questions those are the design elements good luck to everybody thanks okay so i can start thank you and good morning trustees thank you dr Bouquet, for giving uh, us the opportunity uh, to to see our landscape and, and try to help with uh, making better decisions and better strategies for uh, for the future uh, it's always been uh, an honor and privilege to serve uh, our organization so uh, I understand, Dr. Bouquet, that we we'll leave the questions, I guess, until the end, until both presentations have been done. I, I, I think so, just based on yes. the flow. Okay. Yes, please. Very good. So um, uh, the goal of uh, this presentation is to look at our current state of the provider corps, identify key provider stakeholders, and trying to answer questions, is the provider corps aligned with our mission in serving our patients' population and uh, our strategy, our journey to become a population health management system. Uh, and finally, what are the opportunities and challenges for Alameda Health Partners? Dr. Jamaladeen, because you're going to look at the slides, can you move your mic over so that sure. yes, Thank you. Okay, thank you. Great, thanks. So, uh, when we look, we have three uh, medical staff uh, with three MEC committee. We have the Alameda Health System Core with 796 credentialed physicians, uh, and those includes um, uh, hospitals other than Highland. There's uh, uh, the FQHCs and Fairmont and John George in this group. We have the Alameda Hospital. We have 278 physicians. 20% uh, of the total, and then San Diego, we have uh, 307 uh, physicians, 22% of, uh, of the total number of credentials physicians in our system. Now, uh, if you look at the total number, it, uh, it sometimes doesn't uh, add up correctly because we have physicians who are credentialed in more than one, uh, more than one facility. So the total number we calculated is um, uh, 1,111 physicians. Now, if we look at the advanced practice providers, uh, also called allied health providers, those are the, uh, the, the uh, nursing practitioners and the uh, physician assistant, we have 147 uh, in the Alameda uh, core group. Uh, at San we have 12, and in Alameda uh, Hospital, we have uh, 16 of them. Uh, this is the same data shown in a different way. Now, when we look at the uh, diversity uh, distribution of uh, our physicians, uh, they are uh, largely uh, Caucasian, uh, and then uh, the second group will be, uh, sorry, uh, the second group will be the Pacific uh, Asian, uh, and then uh, the Hispanic and African American are the smaller uh, groups. Now, if you look at this distribution, it is almost the same uh, throughout the United States as it is published by the American Association of uh, Medical Colleges and uh, as uh, uh, published uh, in, the, in, the, in the National 
national statistics, uh, we still have a uh, like smaller number of African American, smaller number of Hispanic uh, Latino. Now, when we compare, we probably are a little bit better than other parts of the United States and almost equal with the San Francisco uh, city and, uh, and other areas in Northern uh, California. Uh, about our board certifications, when we look at our board certifications, we have largely uh, uh, board certified uh, uh, physicians throughout the system. We have a handful of uh, uh, board, or non-board certified in Arida Hospital in San Leandro. Now, this large number that we see at, uh, at Highland, it's it's uh, a number of uh, residents or senior residents that are still credentialed in psychiatry, I would say probably around 60 of them, uh, who are board eligible and uh, they remain credentialed, they come and serve in, in our PS center at John George. And this number is, is going to decrease as, as we are addressing it. So there were a number of uh, efforts done by the medical staff to ensure that we are keeping uh, our workforce uh, American board certified in, in, in the system. Now, if we look at the age of our physician workforce, this is a peak between 40 and 49, and this is also nationally the number, the peak is 46, 47 years, and you know, it sort of decreases slightly here, and above 16, we didn't look more above 60, but this is this is how the distribution uh, of our physicians are. Now, uh, when we look at our provider groups by FTE, which is full-time equivalent, uh, care Medical Group makes the largest uh, number as a single uh, uh, organized uh, physician work group. And this number includes the number of physicians that are now um, in the emergency uh, departments. Uh, so this number has increased from our contract to the amendment of the contract. UAPD physicians, we have 72 of them, uh, mainly in the primary care context, family medicine, working in the FQHCs. Uh, the traditional behavioral health working at June George, uh, and then the Alameda Health Partners is 27 currently. We have also UCSF uh, surgery, uh, it's a contract with UCSF, they serve our trauma and our surgical, uh, some of our surgical specialties. Uh, when we look at the specialties that we have in the Alameda Health Partners, uh, we have uh, uh, radiology, which is now system-wide, covering all uh, our acute care facilities, orthopedics, um, and we have urology, uh, anesthesiology. Uh, this number is going to increase as we move into hiring our uh, individually contracted physicians in the next few months. Uh, we have uh, two uh, general surgeons. Uh, we have one ENT, and uh, recently we have the hematologist, oncologist, and our internist who is doing primary care in Alameda, um, in Alameda Island. So we have about 100 uh, other different contracts with various individual groups and individual physicians. Gassan, we say that statement one more time, 100. <laughs> yeah, 100. It's yeah. a lot for 
So, Aim Hospital is 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 our like next largest group here. We have the Sound Hospitalist group, which is six FTE covering San Diego, and this group is moving under Almeida Health Partners in the next few months. We have vascular surgery contract vascular surgeons who cover San Diego, and they really perform the largest numbers of surgery at San Diego, and they serve our system in referring to them our surgical cases from Alameda Hospital and from Highland. And we have coverage in community hospital for various services, including gastroenterology, ENT, podiatry, neurology, pulmonary critical care. All of these are like individual contracts just for coverage. And most of these contracts are not assigned the profits to Alameda Health Partners. In other words, these are private community physicians who serve our system by being on call and responding to the need of our community hospital. So, you know, over my tenure here, I really, with the guidance of my boss, Mr. Finley, we really wanted to engage the physician more and more to participate in decision-making at the executive leadership team level. So, in the ERT team, we have the president of Alameda Health Partners who attend our weekly meeting. Uh, the chief of uh, ambulatory, who is a physician, Dr. Babaria, uh, she's the chief administrative officer and in charge of all operations in all our FQRCs and ambulatory care settings. Uh, our uh, VP of quality is a physician who recently got, uh, got licensed in California and will be starting to see patients uh, very soon. Is again an engaged physician and plays an important role in ELT uh, and in quality and safety and on myself. Uh, when the FTE uh, committee was formed with our back to uh, budget program, uh, there was uh, a voice from the chairs with whom I meet every week uh, that we need to have a physician on board and now the chair of medicine is sitting on this FTE committee and uh, bringing in the voice of the physician uh, in, in, in this committee. Uh, we, with the projects of, of EPIC and having an integrated electronic health records, we need to have uh, uh, system-wide governance, and this task was not uh, easy, but uh, finally, we, with the help of all our leaders in the medical executive committees, the three medical executive committee, we agreed on a very uh, good structure, which is the Clinical Practice Council, with partnership with our nurses, uh, to, to, to be a unified way of governance to decide on policies, on workflows, and uh, in the future, computer uh, physician order management of order entry. We have a system-wide uh, pharmacy and therapy committee and uh, shared agreement among uh, the MECs. So we have uh, come closer to each other as physicians, even though we are three different uh, uh, medical staff uh, licenses. Uh, the Leadership Academy, which I attended, we had one of the chair attended, we want to engage the chairs in uh, also attending it. And it's important the Leadership Academy not only in its content, which is extremely valuable, but also sitting down with non-physicians and operational leaders and nursing leaders and learning together. I 
focus uh, six weeks, uh, one day per week uh, academy, even though uh, I should say that uh, I, I, I abstained from voting initially for these projects. Now I'm very much uh, uh, in favor of these projects to, to learn leadership and management together uh, with, with non-physician group. And uh, uh, Dr. Hearn has been supportive of this, and we are going to bring it into the chairs and see how uh, to, to, to take advantage of this. We have also now engaged the medical staff in the contract review process of non-physician contracts to uh, look at all non-physician contracts that are coming to the board. And uh, we have a process where uh, the, the chief of staffs, chairs, or individual physicians for all uh, clinically impactful contracts to be reviewed. And uh, this process has been improving more and more uh, with, with time. And in conclusion, uh, building a robust unified medical staff really is, is a major aim uh, you know, in, my, in, my, in my job. And uh, we want to have uh, really governance with data-driven leadership. Uh, uh, our physicians, uh, you know, are want and we want to be accountable, but we really want to have data-driven leadership, which is aligned with our uh, strategic mission. Uh, we want to have uh, accountability about the quality and safety of the delivery of care for every patient, every time throughout the system. And um, you know, as we move on, uh, and uh, we have uh, worked on this back to project, uh, the engagement of the leadership in the fiduciary responsibility is extremely important. So operational efficiency is an important one, problem solving and uh, using the new methodology. But most importantly, as, as we move into uh, having more data and an integrated electronic health records, we want to understand really uh, the utilization uh, process by physicians. So even though the physicians uh, uh, might not be signing off on contract, but every time they order test, which is not indicated, or uh, uh, the admitted patient is not indicated, uh, it, 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 it incurs a cost on our system. So our physician leadership in looking at this data and see how we can really deliver the care in a most effective, most patient-centered, safe way will be uh, imperative for our future. And again, you know, strategic decision-making uh, about, about service lines and specialties. Um, now, the alignment of the physicians in terms of their incentivization and the priorities of the Amida Health System, we want to engage them in, into this process as, as, as well. And uh, we talked about physician well-being and uh, building resistance and career growth for our physicians. So, uh, uh, this is uh, my last slide. You know, I want to thank again Dr. Bouquet to give us this opportunity, give me this opportunity. So we go to our mission of, uh, of caring, healing, teaching, and serving all. Uh, this is really what we do. Uh, my question really is not who is a care physician or who is Alinda Health Partner Physicians or who is a TBH Physicians. My question is who is Alinda Health System Physician? Alinda Health System Physician is a very unique physician. And to understand it really, it's not possible to understand it in a slide, but it is maybe possible to understand it, appreciate it, is to go to the bedside. 
our patients are difficult patients. Our patients uh, sometimes have come, they have no family. Yesterday I rounded with Dr. Baden, chair of medicine, on, on her patients. Uh, diseases that are really not uh, seen in many parts of the United States or many parts of the developed countries. Uh, patients with no homes, uh, patients who is injured by a bullet and quadriplegic and cannot take care of, uh, of his children. Uh, patients uh, who are intravenous drug dependent and get very various uh, aspects of diseases and pain and, 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 and uh, being uh, disconnected from society make our patients angry and make our uh, physicians and nurses sometimes vulnerable to this anger. And that's when we talk about resilience. So when I go back to caring, healing, serving all, I think we do it well. But I want to really comment a few words about teaching. And uh, as physicians, I have learned that we have to be teachers because we start by teaching and learning ourselves, but also we have to teach our patients. We have to teach the family of our patients. And, uh, and when we ask about teaching who, what, when, and how we are going to do it, so teaching really is integrated in our system, but really we have to look at it in a different aspect, as uh, the, the, the knowledge right now uh, is available on the internet. I'm sure we can each one take the, the, the phone and ask Siri and we get all sorts of information. <laughs> but what we need to learn is how to work as teams, how we with our nurses, with our operational leaders, as, as physicians, multidisciplinary, our, our uh, uh, whole, our entirety become more than the sum of our numbers. We have to learn how to do this, and we have to learn how to do it every day because we have a different situation every day. Uh, and, 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 and then the last thing is, is uh, what we are going to learn is really uh, our values. Uh, we want physicians who train in our system learn our values. So, uh, and when are we going to do it? We have to do it every single time. Every single encounter with every patient, we have to do it. So when we talk about teaching, it's not only for the physicians. I think as an Alameda Health System, we can teach the world how to deliver the best care for everyone, for everyone, at, at, at a cost that is, that is uh, really uh, you know, affordable and, and reasonable. And, and to become a system where it is the best system to receive care, but also it's the best system to deliver care, where every day when we come back home, we feel fulfilled, we feel accomplished, and we go in the morning looking forward to take care of our patients and work together as a family. And with this, you know, I, I, I end my, 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 my presentation and, and ask uh, Dr. Permia to do his presentation. Uh, I think we're going to take a few moments for questions here. Brief, brief questions brief. if anyone's completely confused. Yeah. Uh, I'll say my question for Dr. Green. Um, yes, I'll come up with a question. How do you define success for this core of, 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 of our organization? How do you define success? Uh, I, I define 
I define success is by delivering the best care, the safest care for every patient every time. I define success by being adaptable, adaptable to change. We started our system just as a safety net, we call it safety net, to help the injured, to help the behavioral health patient. And, and we, our gate has been the emergency department. As a population health management, I define success to prevent those occurrences, to get out of the hospital and work together on the social determinant of health and prevent those, those incidences. I define success by being able to measure everything that we do and be very clear about how we are going to improve it tomorrow. Um, I, I'm interested in your formal structure of communication, specifically related to the hundred different individuals that were contract, not, not so much the MECs because I can understand, um, include that, but uh, I was, uh, I, I can see the incredible complication when you have a hundred different people, individuals, or groups. So what is the formal communication structure? How, how are those people, or, uh, I mean, tell me what the structure is. How do you communicate? So uh, I communicate with uh, uh, chairs at, uh, at Highland every week. I meet with them every week, we have a huddle. This huddle is open to the chief of staff from the other uh, hospital to come in. Well, so that's, that's the three, is that correct? Right. Okay. And, and I didn't mean you specifically. I, I was really interested no, in uh, the institutional. Uh, but when someone from outside, uh, an individual provider comes in, how, how are they acclimated to uh, our values, our system, our processes, etc.? So what is that, what is that link? So uh, the medical staff, uh, they have uh, like an onboarding process uh, that, uh, that we are trying to really make it more standardized. But currently, the onboarding at San Diego, this is the experience that we have now with the ED. And Alameda Hospital and Highland, they are a little different. So uh, how, how you document how you interact uh, with uh, nurses, uh, what tools you use, they are, they are a little bit different. But in terms of our values and, and our mission, it's really part of, uh, of what, what, we, what we did like as, as a package for people who are coming to understand you know, where, where we are going. And we try to have uh, as much as possible uh, like meetings with the chiefs of staff, uh, discussing this, we haven't had like uh, forum. Now we used to have forum last year, but uh, uh, you know the chief of staff are asking after retreat. We do this retreat, so it's. Uh, are, are the chief of staff from the the three MECs? Mm -hmm. uh, I'm still trying to understand how those uh, the uh, people outside coming in, mm -hmm. and, I, and I know that when they come here frequently, etc. What what is the vehicle for their communication, their understanding of what current things are, what people are working on, or what a policy might be, or any of those? It's the chief of staff, is the medical executive committee. Thank you. 
the MEC committee. At the Alameda Hospital, the MEC committee, and some members of the MEC committee. So the, those hundred people are part of the MECs then? Well, the, uh, the chief of staff communicate with them. They don't come to the MEC. They have a representative in the MEC, and then it goes down, it cascades down to all the physicians. Okay. Thank you. So it can be better? Yes, it can be better, I guess. But <laughs> this is a good question. That's part of what we're trying to achieve by sort of standardizing and consolidating sort of the physician voice a little bit. So, so you don't right now have that? It's imperfect in my view. Okay. I think that, okay. Good answer. That's yeah. a good answer. And I just need to know that. Okay. Thank you. As, as Trustee Pickett said, though we've been in, you know, seven or eight years, we've been talking about AHP since 2010. It's still a nascent organization, and thank you, Dr. Pomer, for what you're doing. As CMO, you're kind of the voice, too, in some ways, to speak to uh, the MECs. So, uh, and I heard you say that you have the huddle. Would you, is, is that, does that happen in Holland? Does that happen across the system? Do you, and how often is this, um, are you, uh, is that message coming from you to the MECs of, say, Alameda Hospital or San Leandro Hospital? It happens in Highland. Uh, the problem with the community physicians is really their, their time. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I told the, the chiefs of staff that they can pull me in for any kind of a forum or meetings that, uh, that they want me to do, and they have. So, uh, you know, I have, uh, uh, like, uh, informal meetings. But uh, it might be, uh, it might be worthy to have, just from your question right now, uh, to have more formalized uh, sit-down with the medical staff at, at, at St. Leandro and at Alameda Hospital. I meet with uh, Dr. Barry Deutsch, uh, you know, probably every couple of months I meet with him. I call Ellen probably once a week or once every two weeks to talk about Alameda Hospital. Uh, Dr. Chu, the chief of staff, I talk to him. I speak to the hospitalist chief at St. Leandro, uh, uh, Dr. Youssef. So uh, this, these are the, 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 the forms. But uh, we can look into having more, uh, uh, more like formalized uh, meetings as such. And, uh, I would defer to Dr. Shu or Dr. L as spokespersons for your um, you know, um, teams that do you feel if you have enough um, I think process. or process um, for the community physicians who uh, want to contribute and at least be aligned with what the vision is for Alameda Health System. Um, you know, they may not have a formal contract with the system, but I think um, that's an opportunity for us to look into so that the community physicians uh, for Alameda Hospital are still uh, feel involved and engaged with um, what you know, the uh, vision is for uh, AHS. Yeah, if I might. Um, first off, Dr. Jamaldi, I think this board thinks very, very highly of you, and we're so pleased that you have joined this organization. So we just, I want to make certain that you do not walk away having us 
not, not understand how, how much we value you. Um, in my experience, having formal structures for communication doesn't then put it all on you to have to go out, but rather when people know that here's a place in which they can come to, then when they don't come, that's their, that's their issue. If they're not in the queue, if they don't understand what's going on, when you have a formal structure, it allows them opportunities to get in, and if they choose not to, then, then they're in the dark, and it's not the onus on you to make certain. Shares responsibility. That's right. Uh, so I, I think putting in those structures is really, really critical, particularly when you have so many people who are not in our three MECs. I appreciate this input, and we work on it. I have one, one last question. This is switching gears a little bit. Yesterday we spent about four hours talking about the financial health of our organization. And um, we're about a $1 billion organization. I was looking through the, 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 the line items and it, what's not exactly clear to me, so I guess my question, Dr. J, is how much do we spend on our providers? In yesterday's budget, there were some line items, and there, there is a contracted physician services, which was $91 million, which is about 90% of our total operating expense. But what that probably doesn't include is the non-contracted physician. So if you could give this board a sense for roughly how much does this organization spend on providers? Because that's not clear at, 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 in, in, the, in the budget report. Is this an interesting question, I, 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 I think. I thought it was clear in the budget report. I think it was 100, uh, yeah, 120. It's just under that. 100. It's like 112. Okay. Yeah, it's just not as that. So uh, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how much it was yesterday. So I'm not the best math guy, but it wasn't clear to me. Um, so that's what I just want to know. So 91 for contracted and about 20 million for, so we're, we're talking about on the order of 100 about 10% of our operating budget. That's correct. Okay. About 10%. And that's, and that's uh, I think that's, uh, in the American health system, that's almost the same for, for other, am I that, mistaken? Yeah, that roughly mirrors the relative value of the facility fees versus state pro fees in terms of billing, about 90 10. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. J. All right. So um, I was asked to come and give a brief overview of Alameda Health Partners, the historical context, current state, and where we're trying to go. Um, so I'll start with that historical overview, which I think the board probably knows better than I can be really honest. Um, and then talk a little bit about the HBHS operating model, um, where have we gotten done over the past little bit, and then talk a little bit about strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. So um, this was penned a while ago, um, and basically this gives sort of a gross overview of what was intended when Alameda Health Partners was created, and the idea is once fully operational, it will organize, employ, contract, and affiliate with physicians on the part of Alameda Health Systems. I mean, sort of fundamentally, um, AHS was looking, in my interpretation, to build a uh, partner company that was a wholly owned subsidiary in this particular instance um, that would basically provide physician services and simplify the relationship between AHS and the physicians, um, which would also include um, things like managing quality, quantity, as well as helping to oversee and improve the interface for things like operations, which at least as a physician who's been working at AHS for a while is a, has been a stumbling point in a lot of regards. Um, this was the this so this was that 
um, prior state of sorts, and the state is still in flux in many regards, but basically there were over 200 separate physician contracts, and the important question of asked who's managing those contracts, well, in a sense, not much of anybody. I mean, there was managing of the clinical side of it in terms of relative need, are people showing up, things like that, but in terms of looking individually at exactly how the contracts were structured, how much we're paying for individual services, um, there were a lot of parts that were very hard to keep track of. I mean, we have contracts that have been in holdover for um, years and years and years on auto renewal that no one's taking a good look at. Um, we have a large number of physicians, for example, who are contractors um, who haven't gotten a change to their contracts since 2010 or 11, for example. Um, so it's very challenging when you have that large of a number uh, to stitch everything together in a way that is operable for the institution in terms of fine-tuning and actually getting something that can achieve um, our goals. Um, on a similar issue, this has meant we were, for all these, for the majority of these physicians, or at least a very large number of them, um, they had assigned billing to Alameda Health Systems. However, Alameda Health System has one tax ID number. When they go to then bill a payer, professionals for services they're getting two bills under one tax ID so most of those are getting rejected so hence we've done we've had a huge challenge with actually billing for professional fees under the old model um, and hence our professional revenue has been very poor and there's a lot of reasons besides that but that was a major driver Additionally, we have an interest in population health management. When an outside entity such as a payer looks at this they don't they don't see a network. And it's been very hard to demonstrate conclusively a network to those payers, such it's very difficult for us to get those contracts. In fact, in many regards, simply not possible. So those are some of the major drivers that led us to decide that we needed some other organization that could have a separate tax ID, serve as a hub for contracting, and help to manage all these individual components. And so the quadrants don't mean anything. I apologize. I realized that was a little bit confusing in retrospect. But the idea is that you have one hub that everything drives into, basically. So separate tax ID number that allows us to employ physicians, contract with physicians, and also bill for professional services in a way that's much more effective than the prior model. And we've already started to see a major change in professional revenue over the past couple of years because we have a separate tax ID and because more attention is being paid to the professional revenue side. Um, in addition, it is my hope that this organization has the opportunity to improve the communication we're talking about and sort of serve as that repository of if we need something that's related to physicians, we know where to go, including the physicians knowing where to go and members of AHS knowing where to go in terms of answering a question or addressing a problem. Um, currently, we still have a lot of contracts, although the number is dwindling fairly rapidly. Um, we have several very big, important contracts, of course, which include OCARE, UCSF. Um, Sound was very recently a, con a contract that is going to be transitioning into a perfect relationship. Um, and then, of course, we also have AIM. We have Paragon, which is our uh, pathology group. Um, so still very many contracted relationships, but the hope is that those contracted relationships work a bit better under this model than they did under the prior. But in addition to contracting, we are also employing. So um, if you go back to... Yes, yes, just a clarify question. So does that mean now that... Because we approve contracts with OCARE. So are they with AHS or AHP? So they are with AHP, but because of the way the signature authority works and because we're a subsidiary, ultimately you still see and have to approve those contracts. Got it. Okay, but yeah. they are now with AHP. Correct. There are still... Got, right. I, I think there was a step down, like in two or three years or something. That's a point of this. Yeah, we'll, we'll kind of go over that. Yeah. 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 I did read this last night. Not that I understood it, but I did. Yeah. Hence the dialogue. Yeah, yeah this is the point. Yeah, my apologies. I was trying to. Uh, but anyway, um, 
So if you go back to the end of 2015, we had 11 physicians that were employed by Alameda Health System, either by Highland or by Alameda Hospital. Um, and those were the initial cadre of physicians that became um, Alameda Health Partners um, when it stood up in January 2016. It was the first time we started employing uh, physicians. Since that time, we've been growing fairly rapidly with a series of different expansions. By the end of 2016, we grew to 18 with the addition of radiology in addition to those starting physicians of 11. And then through 2017, you see a steady climb. It is predicted by the end of 2018, if we hired the positions for which we are budgeted, even in our most current budget, we would have a total of 54 positions. And I think it's quite likely we will at least reach 50 of those. So uh, still progressing well. Um, so what are, what are the other uh, reasons why AHP is potentially beneficial to AHS and potentially beneficial to physicians? The first thing is, is that by creating a, um, a single point of accountability, we potentially can improve physician leadership within the organization. I mean, when we talk about this issue of we have three different MECs, we have a very mosaic pattern both of contracts as well as physician leadership schemes within the organization. Um, this gives us an opportunity to sort of think about that in a more system-wide fashion in terms of who should be involved in helping us to make decisions and what's a way to sort of broaden the influence of the physicians in uh, key operational decisions. Um, in addition to that, AHS, of course, needs to know who to talk to about different aspects of the contracts. And sometimes it gets muddy when we talk about um, relationships under different chairs, for example, because you may have subspecialists where it technically reports to say the chair of surgery, but the chair of surgery may not be that involved with that individual person if they're not present very often or have a small footprint within the institution. Um, additionally, of course, the ability to optimize professional revenues is very important because as we talk about the, the normal balance in terms of how much pro-fee revenue comes in versus facility, clearly for a billion dollar company, it's a lot of money and we've been capturing very little of it and it can make a huge difference in achieving these other financial goals. Um, and then we wanted to have this opportunity to be a population health manager and without AHP or something similar, it's not feasible in current state. So this is the current, yes? Uh, stop now. Yeah, ask sure. it'll be contextual. Yeah. Okay, so my question is, the point that you just made about um, pro-fees and about, can you just explain how if um, there's a physician who is in, not in AHP, why, why are their pro-fees not being why isn't the hospital sharing any professional fees since they're using the hospital to practice? Uh, or, or is the hospital? I mean, I understand that there's a contract fee. So for example, um, Oak Care, I guess. Mm -hmm. There's a contract fee that we pay to Oak Care to provide service at. But explain how the professional fees work. So they all have assigned billing to AHS, which means that um, that contracted entity is, is paid for services rendered, and then it's our responsibility to earn their professional fees. And in the prior states, it was a challenge operating under one tax ID number. And also, in addition to the tax ID, we also just didn't have a well-defined process for performing professional billing. You know, the, the, side, the other side of that is that with one entity that's billing for both sides of it, if you have one which is, which is nine to ten times larger than the other in terms of amount, one of them's going to get priority and it's clearly not professional revenue. So that, that's the other part, too. But um, it, it will, So we were eligible to receive that money. It's just that um, either the peers were rejecting it because of confusion over the tax ID number, or we weren't seeking it because effective billing processes had not been built in a prior state. So, as you, you pointed out that we will see an, an increase in revenue for the system as we increase the number of doctors 
DMHP. So it's I would so as we contract through AHP for professional services, that actually increases. It's okay, actually, yeah, that answers my question. Thank you. It's not just about being employed. Okay. I'll add uh, in some of our uh, contracts, particularly the uh, community hospitals, uh, uh, the, we have varying degrees of assignment. So assignment meaning the, the contract is, as Dr. Pernier described, it is for the uh, totality of that provider's fee for providing those services, which means they may relinquish the right to then bill peers for those services, and we do it for them uh, to varying degrees of success. In some of the contracts, uh, the providers or the provider group uh, with which we contracted elected to keep that billing component. So uh, they, we contracted with them. We, payment that went from us to them was essentially a subsidy uh, to say your, your, your ability to collect revenue on uh, the patient population for which you'll see with us is uh, different than if you were in a uh, organization or in a practice that had mostly commercial patients and in order to sustain you and or your practice it as a group uh, we would then uh, not so we don't collect the revenues we don't know how well they're collecting their revenues uh, we, we, there's a supposition they're doing well but if they weren't there was a subsidy basically there was a guarantee of you will at least get this amount and in some cases those numbers would actually dwindle which could be a, a product of the pyramids or the volume or poor billing on their side but we were in the hook to still keep them whole to a certain degree so and then one other caveat that is worth mentioning is that a lot of outside um, private practices are not eligible for sort of supplemental funding that comes for taking care of a large proportion of Medi-Cal patients. So Correct. we are eligible for that if we if we are assigned the billing. But that, that was one of the differences, for example, between our current ED model and CEP. We can actually collect more revenue than CEP could for the same service. That's a good point. Um, so current organizational structure for Alameda Health Partners. Um, so basically, the organization has a board which has um, a consistency that's mentioned on this side. Now, one thing that's different when we talk about contract relationship versus um, HB, HB is a wholly owned subsidiary. In order to achieve the goals that we mentioned of being a population, population health manager has to be made whole. So the way it receives revenue is a little bit different. So in many regards, the HP board is the contracting entity of sorts in the sense that instead of on a periodic basis people coming forward and saying I need this much resources in order to provide this service, the board does that on a monthly basis and decides how much revenue is needed to keep the um, keep the operation afloat and running well and also therefore has a discussion about sort of what's the direction for the organization in terms of what services we should be seeking and how many of something we need to actually accomplish those goals. But you say the organization, you're not, you're talking about the AHP organization and not our system. Well, yes, but they're, uh, they're operating as partners, so in theory, the idea is that this improves that alignment in terms of AHS may have this goal and therefore AHP needs to be able to provide this service or achieve that goal, or on the counter side, AHP needs to be able to accomplish this goal. How is AHS going to be able to provide the support services in order to achieve that? And, and, that, and that's why that board of directors are making that decision? Is that, yes. is that why the representation is it's defined in that way. Yes, there's two different reasons why it's defined that way. The first is that, yes, I mean, if whenever we're talking about how much revenue is coming out of AHS to support AHP, anytime an entity is going to discuss, I need money from you to achieve this goal, of course, the CEO, the CFO and CMO ought to be involved to make sure that it's 
in line. And then the other aspect of that is that um, as a non-for-profit organization, people getting paid by the organization can only represent 49% of the board, so to speak. Which makes sense that an entity would look at that and say, well, you can't have broad access to the account without having some oversight, correct? I mean, it's the same thing with the, our contractor relationships like UCSF or OCARE. They have to sit down with the CEO, CMO, and CFO and discuss how much they're going to receive in order to provide the service. Same idea, except instead of meeting every three years when we're into a contract, we meet monthly. It gives us a little more flexibility. And in many regards, it gives us more physician of more physician leadership because if you look at the breakdown of the board in most negotiations you don't have three of the 11 being AHS and the rest being either the physicians or community members. So in some ways it makes it a more democratic process for deciding what resources need to go to whom in order to accomplish the goal. And then underneath the AHP board, um, we basically have physician leadership, which consists of the president, which is currently myself, and then we have an operations council um, that helps to, divide, helps to decide the rest of how things are sorted out um, on an operational level. And then there's subcommittees underneath that that includes things like uh, compensation committee, which is still um, sort of, we're still kind of ironing out the bugs in terms of how that should be managed, but they're looking at different aspects of compensation in terms of models and such. And then there's also going to be a membership committee that's going to start to stand up now as we start employing more, more and more people. Pardon me. Um, Dr. Pony, are you elected by the, the organization? Yes. Thanks. Not elected. Appointed. I was appointed, I was appointed yeah. by the board, yes. Okay. Yeah. But they did have to vote. <laughs> yes, correct. Uh, so, um, and then we also have an executive director. That position is actually not currently filled. Um, so it is a, going to be rebranded as the chief administrative officer for Alameda Health Partners and uh, provider delivery, and we're currently recruiting for it. And then we currently have two other members of the organization, which is Karen Black, which is our director of operations, and then we have an executive assistant for myself and the eventual CAO. There's other vacant positions for things like um, revenue, for example, that we're going to be filling, but we want to get the CAO back in position in order to move things forward. Any other questions? And it's also worth pointing out that the operations council that looks at how things operate within the organization, which is probably most analogous to a board, actually, for most other physician groups, um, is composed of not just employed physicians. In fact, Dr. Paquette was on it at one point, um, and we will be welcoming more members of OCARE on in the near future, but also has, for example, Dr. Victorino, who's a contracted physician. Um, in terms of the implementation timeline, um, so I mostly know what happens after 2016, but this was sort of the original concept from the Board of Trustees in terms of is this appropriate direction to move on, and then once deciding it, the structure was um, largely being worked on. In 2014 and 15 is when a lot of the big decisions were made about um, how we would relate to AHS um, when the bylaws were, for example, finalized. And then we started providing services directly in 2016 as an entity that could both employ and contract. You know, ironically, and it, it kind of tickles me, is my very first retreat in 2012 was to make that decision. So I've seen this evolution all the way down. Yeah. And this is the, the current operating model. And again, the idea is that this is a partner organization with AHS um, operating effectively in, in parallel in order to um, ensure that the services that are needed have, um, that the services that are needed for AHS to provide 
the care of its patients is then met from a physician standpoint, and again, it can be met in a series of different ways. Um, but improving that relationship in, this, in terms of deciding how to make operational decisions is another key issue of, of governance that's currently um, in the works right now as we try to think about the best way to operate these two entities. This was the place where I got confused. <laughs> yeah, this model. Uh, yeah. It, um, my apologies. No, it's okay. I just, it's no. probably me. Um, it's not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I just, I don't, I don't totally see the connection. Um, so maybe you could just elaborate a little bit more. Sure. I mean, the, the fundamental issue is that we currently are utilizing AHS services for the vast majority of supporting services that we um, that we need. Because, of course, the physicians are just one small part of actually delivering care. And in the current model, while AHP may either employ or contract for the physicians, pretty much all the other supportive, um, supportive assets and individuals um, are owned and managed by AHS. So being able to manage those, can, and that is a lot of different Now I understand. Yeah, okay. Fully owned subsidiary is the key element here. Well, yeah. sort of. I mean, that would be the case, too, if you were, I mean, so one yeah, something like a foundation is actually required to control those other aspects, which creates issues with our unions. Just right. like, how is this, I'm sorry, no, good. How is this doing or like um, Kaiser model? Very similar from what I can tell. The big difference is that TPMG is a, um, it's a for-profit agency that is wholly owned by the physicians, but they still have to sit down and negotiate with Kaiser. So I don't know what that interface looks like at the top, because again, that interface is our AHP board. So they may in fact have a very similar relationship. I'm guessing there's something reasonably balanced in terms of decision making. Um, on, the, uh, on this page, so for example, I just see under the CXO's strategy is listed. And so AHS has to provide all of the kind of nuts and bolts support for AHP because yes. otherwise you're just, not just, but you're doctors. You've got, yeah. you've got important work to do, providers. And so, but as far as the strategy, if it's all under AHS, does that? So it's not all under AHS. Okay. It seems like this could cause a provider to be reluctant to be part of AHP because they don't feel that it's necessarily well. You see, and that's one of the, that, yeah, that's a point of confusion here. But realistically, the issue is that we're not trying to designate single individual physicians, for example, to be involved with strategy. So there may be a department of strategy on the AHS side, but that's actually, that's an arrow that's supposed to interface around to physicians, employee contract and affiliated, and they're supposed to be playing a role in that decision making. Okay. Does it happen? Not yet. Work in progress. But we are still building out those aspects. I mean, we have, for example, like a new specialty council that's standing up, and we're still looking at sort of a, uh, who will be constituents and how the process is going to work. But that's, you know, a big part of this is there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to get built because a lot of our drive recently, I mean, you hear a small number of names involved in this entity, and I'm 70-some percent clinical, by the way, so it's not like I'm working out. This is my weekend thing. Um, so realistically, um, a lot of components of it need to get built. But the other thing is we want to engage our partners in deciding how we're going to build that. So I think that's a critical aspect as well. Trustee Hernandez has a question, and I think Dr. Madani will give you a question as well. Uh, just my question, uh, forgive me, I'm just trying to understand a little bit further about um, how this works. So, so let's assume I'm a physician, I aspire to be part of AHS, is it at all possible that I would approach um, AHP and try to become a member and hope that that allows me to become a physician here? 
Um, I, said, I, I would say that it could if the, the need is present, for example. Okay. So um, I think for, for all the entities, of course, we have a certain budget and a certain mm -hmm. allocation of sure. what has been planned. Uh -huh. um, I would argue that there is actually more flexibility with AHP, and we've had a couple of instances like, for example, ENT was an opportunity that we weren't originally considering, but um, an opportunity provided itself and we were able to make that move and employ a physician to address a backlog. Because one of the benefits, of course, of this process is instead of having to do yearly contract amendments, mm -hmm. we can designate things on a monthly basis and sort of do it on the fly in a way that's not as easy because of, you know, laws that affect physician contracting. Right. And my follow-up is, what does it cost for an individual physician to become part of AHP? Um, it effectively costs their salary and benefits in terms of what our true cost oh, is. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. Thanks. Uh, and hopefully there will be revenue on the other side. <coughs> but one of the... Sorry. Go ahead. All right. Well, I was going to say one of the one of the major issues that has been with AHS for a long time too is that we we haven't always been as thoughtful as we could be about how to actually build physician practices and make sure that things are really optimized and humming. And it is our dear hope that as we build out a supportive infrastructure for this organization, that we'll be able to achieve that and make more effective practices. I mean, it's, it's a lot of things like just the ergonomics of practice can be very challenging, the mm -hmm. kind of support that you have from the IT infrastructure, the physical plans, and yeah. trying to get people more involved in how do we address this. Um, and then, you know, just Dr. Madelon and Dr. Hearn and I were actually just talking before this meeting about some needs, for example, that are present in the emergency room that are directly affecting our ability to do things like cases in the operating room at Highland and how there are a couple of good ideas that were thrown out for how we could address this, but in the current state, there's not a lot of people from multiple campuses getting together over the existing medical staff structure because they're separate and people don't necessarily interface with each other as often. That was my communication question. Yes, absolutely. So that's part of building on this is building something that is not looking just at what campus do you primarily work at or what entity are you contracted with, but looking more broadly. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Magdalene and Dr. Chu, I believe you have a question as well. I just need some uh, clarification in the position operating council. Yes. You know, who determines the composition and what is it? Uh, what's the term of the positions that are in there? So usually people are on it for two years, and we have had some rotations on and off, but largely it's been um, decided by me. Although that's certainly open to be changed as we build out the system. Mm -hmm. Concern is the quality of care. Um, yeah, I know it's kind of hard to quantify quality of care, but I, I mean, um, do you have any quantification of quality of care? I guess the easiest uh, way of measuring it would be physician who was previously with AHS and now with AHP. Is there any change in uh, patient care and as well as now physician wellness? Do you find that the, uh, the provider is more uh, well, uh, able to do uh, their, their uh, clinical duty without, uh, uh, say, so much uh, attention to the um, uh, other um, uh, nuance of practice? So that's, I guess those are two, two questions. Sure. So as far as quality transitions from going from AHS employed to AHP employed, I'm not aware of any transitions that have led to poor quality. That would be unfortunate if that were the case. Um, we have not, the quality measures have not really been determined so much by AHP to date. They're more built into um, site-specific or department-specific reporting. 
Um, and that is another thing that AHS in general is trying to build up to have more direct accountability for, for quality, so to speak, in deciding what those metrics ought to be. In terms of quality of practice, I would argue that to date, as we really look at um, the experience of being a physician at, at AHS, it's not really who employs you that dictates the quality of practice. It's your circumstances within AHS, which is part of the reason why that needs so much attention turned onto it in terms of both physician wellness and efficiency and how we're going to make real practice improvements. I apologize. Uh, after Trustee Jensen, I'm going to let you go back to your slides because I started this wave of questions, which we were supposed to hold until the end. So I, I take responsibility, but go ahead and then we'll get back onto the slides. Is that okay? Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. I, my question is about the slide, actually. I'm trying to understand where the MECs fit in, and this goes to, I think, the last question. Um, but also, the back office support would be, I, I, I imagine, include credentialing. But, and, and for this board, we hear from, I see AHS board and AHP board, and we hear from the MECs, is there direct communication with regard to resources? Because we'll hear from the MECs about resources or about organization. Do you hear from the MECs or do you just hear from the physicians who are part of AHP? We hear primarily from the physicians. But I, I hear not only from physicians who are part of AHP, I hear from physicians kind of globally. Right. Right. So it just, I wonder where the MECs could or should fit into this operating And we're still trying to sort that out ourselves in terms of what's the best way for all these. But the big part of this is to try to have an organizing structure that decides how information is supposed to flow. Right, and especially with regard to credentials, that's where the MECs do fit in somehow in the, in the green part of, I, I guess. Of yes, the, indeed. Right, so just something to think about. Thank you. Sure. Mm -hmm. That has improved, though, don't you think? Don't you think that has improved that credentialing and the MECs coming together? Yeah, but how does that relate to the AHP? I see. Yeah. I think it's great. <clears throat> The next slide is busy, so I'm hoping we won't talk so much about it. But basically, this was um, one of the original, basically, service agreements between AHS and AHP in terms of what is um, what is delivered and what resources come primarily from AHS, and then how resources flow between the two. is that, keep in mind, we've been operational for less than a year and a half, so this is all very new. Um, and one of the challenges that we've had is that we've actually struggled a little bit with leadership in the organization from an administrative standpoint. So our first um, executive director, unfortunately, had a series of absences related to health and personal circumstances, um, wasn't available enough, so we um, moved on to another one who, unfortunately, wasn't able to stay for us very long. So we're still, hopefully we can engage things and move things along a little quicker once we sort of stabilize that aspect. But in spite of those um, growing pains, we have been able to create a company that can recruit and hire physicians, which um, certainly has not been as easy as it sounds, and I speak from personal experience on that. We also have built a much more unified enrollment system that, uh, for physicians that allows us to capture revenue in a way that's much more consistent um, with a lot fewer gaps in terms of who is credentialed and who is ready to start practicing. 
and then it's giving us an opportunity to evaluate more system-wide what support entities we have in order to um, provide care because we have a lot of limitations in our resources. I mean, you know, Highland, for example, is a hospital that is bursting at the seams. Every single aspect of it is maxed. And this allows us to think more, think a little bit more how we're going to shift things around to still accomplish our goal in terms of utilizing the other campuses. Um, and in some instances, even thinking about you know what services should, for example, rest with outside entities versus internal entities. Um, on a similar note, we've been able to integrate several um, system-wide service lines. Um, orthopedics was the first, um, and next was radiology, and then most recently emergency medicine, where we have providers who can go across the system to provide care and improve standardization. And then we're very happy that we were able to restore the 1206B clinic for um, Alameda Hospital. That is also still in very nascent stages, has a long way to go, but in cooperation um, potentially with OCare, for example, we may be able to further expand the provider pool in a very effective manner um, because one of the challenges that this 1206B has had is that it's gone through at least three different providers prior to being, so prior to Alameda Hospital moving into AHS, they, it was a bit of a revolving door of providers, and it's because it's very hard to be a primary care doctor working in isolation in one location. So we are working very hard to address that, but still maintain reasonable economies of scale. And the best way to do that is to integrate people into something that's more system-wide as opposed to thinking on a um, site-specific basis. Sorry, this thing's a little bit loose. Should I have a screwdriver? Um, so anyway, here's our um, analysis in terms of strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. So um, strengths, the same for AHS as for AHP, is the providers. Um, we have wonderful providers. We have providers who feel very strongly about the mission, who feel very strongly about the institution, um, and within AHP seem to have a fairly common vision for how practice um, should evolve within AHS and are very supportive of the organization. Um, I think there's an opportunity to strengthen and align the physician voice through AHP um, in terms of how we build out the structures um, within AHP itself and interface better with our contractors and employed physicians. Um, and the physicians are very engaged in building their practices, which is a, a key differentiator for example. I mean, a key issue that we historically have struggled with at AHS is actually building the practice and making it run well, both for the sake of the patients as well as the sake of physician wellness. Um, and then another critical part is AHS is very committed to AHP's mission um, in terms of making sure that we get the resources that we need and succeed um, in strengthening our relationship with our parent organization. Um, some of the opportunities, we need to refine our internal governance structure. It, there's just not very much of it because in the beginning we were governing 11 people and that was a pretty straightforward task. Um, and even as we've grown, um, most of our transitions have been, you know, relatively lateral transitions, for example, where if use, something that used to be a contractor relationship becomes an employed relationship, and most of the operations around it are unchanged. But now as we look toward making demonstrable improvements to operations and sort of refining our interface with AHS, um, we need to build that out, and we want the assistance of our partners to be able to do that, both contracted, employed, want everyone to participate and tell us what's the best way to do this, for you to be heard and for you to see results. Um, we think we can improve the visibility of physicians within AHS um, for the physicians who are outside of AHS because especially in the era of managed Medi-Cal, we actually share a lot of patients with entities that we hadn't considered. For example, Sutter. There's a lot of primary care doctors at Sutter or specialists at Sutter who take care of our patients as well and trying to find ways that those physicians can be more aware of the fact that certain services are provided 
by HHS because it's there's not a, an easy way to do that with our existing web presence or other published information. Um, it's more of word of mouth, and it would be better if there was actually a defined resource, which we are also working on in the form of a website that will support not only employed but also all the physicians who are contracted with us. Um, and then we want to have better programs for things like physician wellness and just have an organization that thinks about the doctor as its primary primary goal. Um, one of our weaknesses is that we're a new organization within AHS, um, corporate family-wise, so there are lots of people who don't know who we are or what the relationship is. Um, a lot of individuals have viewed us as being only 25 physicians. What I mean by that is that um, if something doesn't directly affect someone we employ, there's a, there has been, with some groups, a tendency to say, oh, don't worry about it. We're not talking about any of your people. And it's like, well, actually, we, we're trying to be more broadly involved, not just thinking about our employed doctors. Um, and then sometimes our operational role is, is murky in terms of what entity is supposed to make a decision and how are we supposed to cooperate in order to build that. Again, very much work in progress. Um, Additionally, professional billing has made ton a lot of strides, but there's still a lot of potential, and we feel that um, the physicians through either this entity or something related to that need to participate more directly in helping to iron out problems, because they're the ones who see the issues firsthand. Um, and then in terms of threats, I mean, we have a, a, a very well-established mosaic structure, for example, of physician leadership within the organization. Mm -hmm. um, we also have, there's also questions of operational autonomy to, you know, to improve our practices because, again, those resources lie within AHS and there's going to have to be a, um, a process defined that helps us to ensure that we get what we need in order to accomplish our goals because we can't directly change staffing models or change the physical plant, for example. Um, and then, of course, there's going to be growing pressure to improve performance on all aspects. Um, you know, this is a trend within medicine itself, which basically is you have to find a way to do more with less. Um, we're already doing a lot with not very much. It's a chronically under-resourced uh, system across the board, and so that, that pressure is hard on morale. I think, um, yeah, I want to know who those people are that are doing less with more, because it seems like everywhere I go, we're all trying to do more with less. Right? I'm in government, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, thank you for that. And, um, shall I, do, do the board have questions they want to ask now, or shall I open it up to public comment first? Or, uh, what's your pleasure, folks? I have a clarifying okay, question. Yes. Just a, a, a clarifying question. What should be, if I misunderstood this, forgive me, what should be the relationship between AHP and our Quality Professional Services Committee? Oh, okay. So, so I'm not. Yeah. I'm, I'm missing a little bit because. Oh, Dr. Yeah, so, so I, I can discuss yeah. that. So, um, quality. Uh, so, quality of peer review falls under medical staff bylaws and medical staff uh, work. So, all peer review committees, etc., are medical staff committees. So that follows up through MEC uh, and then gets reported to QPSC. And that's part of the challenge, as Nick alluded to, is that their medical staffs are sort of a separate legal entity. Um, and so, in some ways, there are, there are uh, yeah, parallel, parallel sort of leadership structures, and, uh, and but quality, basically, I mean, uh, quality in general from the QRCs goes through medical staff reporting to QPSC. Okay. 
Okay. And as I understand it. And there's, I mean, just to be clear, you know, a lot of what we're talking about in terms of, you know, internal governance and addressing these issues is about connecting those entities. Yeah. It's not about yeah. changing or replacing. Yeah. It's just about how do we get the information. It, it just seem like they should connect somewhere legally, of course, so that there is communication about those standards always being recognized by AHP. Right. And, and, I'm, and I also don't want to duplicate um, infrastructure that yeah. already exists because we don't want to make more roles than necessary. Agreed. And, you know, part of the challenge is that there has to be an element of discovery because there's a lot of decision-making entities within that the physicians have formed or parts of the organization have formed across the different campuses, across the different sites, uh -huh. and we're not all aware of each other. Right. So that's part of this, too. So my final question for that would be, Is does it make sense for another member of our board to be part of the AHP board, aside from Del Vecchio and Dr. Uh, Jamaluddin, because of just different perspective being available to you? We can explore it. Oh, okay. Yeah, just, so, just, uh, just for clarification, <coughs> sorry. Um, the AHS board appoints the AHP board members. So you, I, I don't know that there's a provision for you to actually appoint yourself. No, no, no. I just didn't know that. I didn't. I did not know that those were appointed. I thought those right. were automatic. No, no, no. You appoint, you appoint all the members of the AHP board. Okay. Yeah, and you recently appointed. But we didn't choose who to appoint. We just. A candidate was brought to you for consideration, largely from the AHP board, doing their own sort of looking ah. for individuals, and then okay. you then voted on whether that individual. It's not, it's, it's, it's not terribly dissimilar to what, we, to what construct we set up for um, this board from with with the board of supervisors. The last member you appointed to the AHP board was Dr. Ian. Uh, the other board members ex officio are written into the bylaw, so you don't appoint us. Uh, but the other board members you appointed at inception of AHP, and since that time, the only board member you appointed is. Okay. Yeah, I do remember that when we when we, when we approved the bylaws, um, that it automatically the CEO and the CMO are on the board. I, I see all that. that but I, I guess I just missed that we are playing all. In, and I like the analogy of the board of supervisors. The, the, you, you're doing the vetting. We're simply kind of ratifying it, similar to how we do the vetting for our own board, but the board of supervisors ultimately appoints. Correct. Okay. And is there an open call or it's an appointment selection that the names that you send to us for vetting? I mean, you vetted it, but yes. is, there, is there an open process of so vetting the physician operation? It's going to largely come from the operations council and go to the AHP board to be approved on their end, and then it will come, come to them. Down. Yes. Okay. 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 We have several more people to appoint, so you'll probably be seeing more of this in the near future. Just, oh, sorry. Michelle, and then, yes. Yeah. So, and, and that first slide that you, when you said purpose of AHP, and you said this was what was developed in 2012, I just wanted to know, is that still what it is in 2018, or is there a shift in No, that, that's what we're envisioning. I mean, we want this to be an organization that the physicians feel give them the opportunity to actually um, obtain what they need in order to accomplish their goals. Okay. Um, and then also, we wanted to improve transparency about how decisions are made, how processes take place, things like that. I mean. Okay. So I was telling that to um, Dr. Shu's question of like being part of AHP 
connected to improved quality of care, things like that, possibly is what you're hoping to. Okay. Yes. Uh, I know this is this is probably a question, but you called yourself a company and then you also called yourself an organization. Is is there a difference between, or is that a deliberate word, or is there a difference between an organization and a company? That was not deliberate on my part, but okay. I mean, it is a subsidiary company. Um, I, I don't. I, I don't know the de difference of definition. I don't either, I don't either and that's that because you used it. And I thought, oh, a company. Huh? It was an accident. I mean, I think you look more like a union, frankly, but no. that's, <laughs> I won't. I won't go that so, so, in fact, it is a company, isn't it? It's incorporated. Yes. So, that we can, so it, is, it has a separate tax ID. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just want, uh, I, I just want to make sure that all the board members know who Dr. Pernia is. Dr. Pernia is a spine surgeon that handles very complicated trauma spine cases, and he operates uh, in all our acute care facilities, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, I don't have elective time at San Leandro, but I go to both Highland and Alameda routinely. He has two clinics, one in Alameda Island and one in Highland. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Carnia. Thank you. I think I should call our I think I should call the public speakers now. Yes. Okay. Uh, and Rana, where will they? They can stand here. Oh, they can. They can stand here, stand in the front there. How about at the end of the table? Yeah. Or we can turn our chairs. Should we turn our chairs? Well, sure. I want to work. I mean, just. Uh, well, let me just, just make sure they use the mic. I don't yeah, just please use the mic. Uh, so I have Tiffany Howell in order. Which means they need to do Yeah, uh, Tiffany Howell, uh, and then uh, Veronica Sood. I hope I got your names pronounced properly. Uh, Valerie Eng, uh, Ray Ye, Roberto Salata, um, Swapnil Shaw, Kevin Gardner, Nick Nelson, uh, David Tian, and then uh, Katie McKee. And just make sure you speak into the mic, and uh, I guess we can turn towards you. Oh, yeah, do they have to come up? Uh, we have a mic back. Oh, okay. Yeah, let's take the mic so they'll be comfortable. Can we turn up the lights as well, perhaps? I'm sorry. Is it on? Hi. I don't think I really need this, but uh, I'm Tiffany Howell. I'm a board-certified pediatrician, and I've been at Highland for 14 years. Um, if you count the time I was doing uh, residency rotations, that would be 17 years. Um, I came to Highland because I loved it, and it was really the only place I wanted to work. Um, and I came straight out of residency, and it's really the only uh, medical job I've had, although I had a previous career before I went into medicine. Um, I just kind of wanted to give you the overview of what I do and why I work at Highland. Um, I'm an in-hospital pediatrician. We have pediatric coverage at Highland 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We cover our neonatal intensive care unit. We cover well babies that stay in our postpartum unit. We go to every single delivery on our labor delivery unit. And we see newborns and children in the ER as needed. Um, 
that's the community standard now to have a pediatrician in the hospital 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and so that's what we do. Um, we have an extremely dedicated group of pediatricians who have been there um, about as long as I have, or a little bit less. They um, with minimal turnover because we really love our job and we love what we do. We have very complicated patients who come to Highland. We have moms with hypertension and diabetes and obesity and social issues and drug issues. Um, and we take them all. And we have the skills to be able to really handle whatever comes into the door at Highland, from women who come in and deliver a one-pound baby at 24 weeks, which we send on to a higher-level unit, to um, you know, teenagers who come, um, just uh, whatever comes in the door, we really have the skills to handle all of that. And because we have a, a system that's set up from the ER to the labor and delivery to a well-established NICU to our postpartum unit, it's all interconnected and we can provide the care that we need to provide for all those different patients that come in the door from multiple countries and multiple languages and multiple situations uh, from, you know, pregnant patients who didn't expect to be at Highland because they came in from a trauma to just, you know, everyone in the, in the county. Um, we have some specific skills at Highland, including taking care of opiate-addicted babies that are, I think, stronger skills than many hospitals in the county because we've been doing it for so long. Um, what else can I say? Oh, and we have an excellent breastfeeding program. So we are baby friendly. We have an established breastfeeding program. We keep moms and babies together. We have a NICU that allows moms to come and sleep at the bedside of their baby and to um, stay with them. Some of those interventions have been shown to reduce NICU's time if moms are able to bond with their babies. I think we have fewer readmissions because we do such a good job um, you know, teaching moms and babies and doing um, good breastfeeding work with them. So, I think my time is up, but that's what I wanted to say. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, 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 Veronica Soup? Do you want me to take your time? Oh, okay. Can I take her time for just one minute, like 30 seconds? Sure. Okay, so I just wanted to say I was on yesterday. I had a very long shift. And to give you an example of some of the things we do, so three out of four of my babies that were born yesterday required significant resuscitation skills. They came out with heart rates less than 60. They were not breathing. They needed to be um, given oxygen support. Only one of those ended up sick enough to be admitted to our NICU. Um, however, the other two, without the skills of the pediatricians there to provide that and the nursing staff to provide that, those babies would have been very sick. So it's not just looking at who gets admitted to our NICU, but it's also um, we have complicated patients and a lot of the babies need some support at delivery, which is why we're there. Thank you. My name is Valerie Wong. I'm the chair of pathology. Oh, you got to reset the clock. <laughs> <laughs> I run laboratories. The trains have to run on time. Um, I came to Highland in 2005 after 17 years at UCSF in San Francisco, and I was drawn to Highland Alameda Health System because it's truly the community I wanted to serve. Um, what makes it so special are my colleagues and the patient population we try to keep healthy. My comments are sort of reflected tr to trying to answer some of the questions the trustees have brought up. Um, it's clear to me that the most pressing issue for the clinicians is time. We don't have enough time. 
there are a lot of new strategies and programs that are being onboarded, and the physicians are crying out loud because we don't have the time. Um, I believe Trustee Lawrence kept asking, how do we communicate? And I've decided that is my role in life because I'm at the chair's huddle on Monday, I'm on the HP Ops Council, and I sit there and I see every one of you during the week. So I try to bridge that gap. Um, I wanted to talk about credentialing. You asked Trustee Banerjee about, did you, about the MECs, Hernandez, and how we all relate with AHP. And it's my understanding that the MECs are responsible for the credentialing and that AHP relies on that before we hire people or sign contracts. So that's the intersection there. Uh, Dr. Chu had asked, what is the, how do we look at quality of care through AHP? And while Dr. Hearn mentioned each of our departments have individual quality programs looking at peer review and the individual practitioner. The alignment with AHS really um, circles around things for which we get paid. And you may have heard of these things in QPSC, surgical site infections, catheter-associated urinary tract inf infections, patient satisfaction, and our star ratings, right? Ultimately, if we can get our act together and the physicians are aligned and understand what we need to do to improve our activities in those areas, we can improve our star ratings and that would be a piece of our pay that would be the incentive. That's how I see it all linking together. And then finally, um, that also relates to how does the QPSC relate to the quality metrics, not only for the departments, for the medical staffs, but for AHP. All of us are pulling in that same direction, again, around these initial pay-for-performance metrics, but ultimately through population health. And what Tangerine is trying to do to make sure we keep our population healthy through various metrics, HEDIS, other quality metrics that are mandated by CMS, et cetera. So that's how I see the pieces of the puzzle fitting together. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Ray? Hi, you guys. Well, that's that. Um, there's a handout. If you don't have one, I think they are on the stack over there. It's a general overview of who we are. We're AIM, the uh, internal medicine group. Um, so there's a lot of finer details on that. So I kind of wrote this because I'm not very good off the cuff, honestly. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to speak. I'm Dr. Ray Ye, a Highland graduate from the class of 1995, a founder, board member, and past president of AIM, and current division chief of AHS Internal Medicine. Uh, a brief history of who we are. In 2002, I entered a call for a hospital services at Alameda Hospital after Kaiser had purchased AMG, a multi-specialty group that controlled the hospital. The hospital was in danger of closing. After securing the agreement, we placed a 24-7 inpatient hospitalist service and stabilized patient flow, utilization, standardization. Um, in, addition to, in, in addition to during that time period, uh, we, helped, we helped facilitate the passing of the district tax in Alameda. Uh, next in, our, in the timeline is in, in 2006, a group formed, uh, AIM formed, and we uh, partially, partially in response to the death of a physician at John George. Within the first few months, AIM became in charge of all the HMPs and all the medical consults on that campus. One of my first few days, I ran, quote, three code blues. If you know what code blues when they're dying, and that's what the environment was like at John George at that time period. 
um, on the MU1 code booth without a crash cart. Um, the stories at that facility are numerous, but as time has allotted, things have definitely improved and stories are not as juicy as they used to be, but there's a lot of them. Uh, in, 19, I'm sorry, in, in 2008, uh, we began seeing a portion of the patients at Fairmont, uh, not all of it, but, uh, and at that time, Fairmont had been in the news numerous times. Um, seven by your side had done, uh, had come by and evaluated the place. And, uh, and the state had put us in jeopardy for veil beds, and it was a mess. It was a mess. It was a raging fire, and no one could reach in. Everyone was dealing with the fire at the top, and no one could reach in and pull the embers out to sort them out. But over time, um, with persistence, and mindful patient care, uh, that facility reached a five-star status. Um, other affiliated programs that AIM is involved with is um, uh, we participated in setting up hospitalist programs at North Bay Health System, San Leandro Hospital, Queen of the Valley, and some other set of facilities. Our group was instrumental in launching Sorian at John George in Fairmont and else, as well as the inpatient campus at Highland when it was launched there, we helped we participated in that. Um, and as of this day, currently, AIM is 100% electro electronically compliant at John George and Fairmont. Um, uh, we just did it. You guys didn't really ask us to do it. We wanted to do it. We felt that it was part of it. Uh, we're certain that the transition into EPIC will go smoothly. Success for me has been measured with improved outcomes, decreased length of stay, decreased utilization, and decreased recidivism, um, as well as improved health grades, same health grades. I think those stars make a difference. Um, uh, but I will make the observation that many through history, these successes have been unnoticed by and large. It's just the nature of it. Um, in summary, we are proud of uh, uh, what we've been able to bring AHS. Uh, we feel that we've improved John George and Fairmont, um, and, um, and that we helped Alameda Hospital survive up to this point. We, be, we believe that our current team, AIM team, is poised to examine the future of quality-based quality purchasing, bundled payments, and population health. For me, the broader goal is to be the best county-run facility in the United States. That would be my goal. Uh, in combination with caring, healing, teaching, and serving all, is no doubt a convoluted path, but gives us a focal point, which I believe is achievable. I believe in the next few years, throughput throughout the system will improve, processing more patients faster, effectively, with quality and precision. Um, I believe private sector business is within the grasp of AHS. How do we do it? Reputation, communication, and a superior product. Okay. That's it. Roberto. Uh, Salada. Um, I am a general surgeon. I'm one of the two general surgeons at, High at Alameda Hospital, and I also trained at Highland. I finished my residency in 2008. 
Um, I have been at Alameda Hospital since 2008. Um, in 2010, um, I was hired by the City of Alameda Healthcare District to provide general surgery services. And uh, I have been there ever since. For a couple of years, I was really the only general surgeon on the island and in the hospital. Um, but this was not the only work that I performed. Through my time at Alameda Hospital, I have held a monthly general surgery clinic at UC Berkeley, and uh, I took general surgery call shifts at Sutter. As a result of that work, I have introduced countless Sutter patients and Cal students to Alameda Hospital for surgical services. Um, in fact, since 2010, dozens and dozens of Cal Berkeley students have been coming to Alameda to have their elective surgeries there. And um, just last week, I did a uh, elective uh, hernia surgery on a, on a patient uh, from Cal. Um, after the affiliation, um, I became employed by AHS and eventually AHP. And uh, many of you met Dr. Lee yesterday. Dr. Lee mentioned that um, uh, we were informed about six weeks ago that our employment with AHP would uh, end in June, uh, but we were assured uh, that we would still be able to take general surgery call at Alameda Hospital via a contract uh, with AHS. Uh, many physicians at both San Leandro and Alameda Hospital have such contracts. Um, and I am actually grateful to AHP for the opportunity to have worked with AHP for the past two years. Um, I um, wish them well because I think if they do well, uh, AHS will do well, and then Alameda Hospital will do well. Uh, but I am a little bit disappointed that I have not been able to uh, talk to anyone about a um, call contract. And um, I believe that there is room at Alameda Hospital uh, for community physicians to practice independently, independently the way they have for probably the last hundred years. And, uh, and that is my goal. But in order to do that, it would be uh, beneficial to have a call contract um, for providing general surgery services for the hospital because um, recently many of my referrals come from the ED. I think that's going to change because uh, Alameda Hospital is again uh, uh, taking private insurances. Uh, we're just about out of time, uh, so just to summarize, I think Alameda Hospital is a wonderful place to work and I hope to continue working there and uh, I uh, hope to be able to meet with someone uh, to discuss uh, a call contract. Thank you. Well, I want to, I want to, I want to address everybody. Um, first of all, I'd like to start with a message of gratitude and appreciation that we all in this room get to serve this community. Whether it's by hard work as a physician, or as a board member, or as an administrator, I'd like to start with the message that um, I, uh, I was the immediate past uh, chief of staff. I am, I guess. And during that year, uh, I was very fortunate to be able to finally work with an administration 
who is willing to listen to physicians as they made decisions. In fact, Dr. Jamaluddin would not be here in the way he got here if the administration wasn't willing to do things differently than had been done in the past. So I'd like to, I'd like to start with that message. That being said, what I'd like to say is most of the doctors here have worked here. They went to residency here, maybe, you know, uh, came here right after residency or have served many, many years here. Uh, 15 years for myself, 14, you heard 17, there's 25, there's 40, okay? So that doesn't make us any better, but it makes us different, right? It makes us following some sort of a calling and we need to be treated as such. And so that's kind of what my message has to do. We know that hospitals that assist physicians in doing their work do better than hospitals that tell physicians how to do that. There's data for that and everybody knows around this country that's kind of where we need to move, right? And we are slowly but surely moving there. Operations here are very difficult for us because we are expected to be generals and frontline soldiers all at the same time without control of our environment and without the ability to constantly communicate with the groups that need to do the work that we need to get done. However, we're also the ones held accountable for everything. Okay? We're the ones that are responsible, even though maybe only 10% of the budget, we're probably bringing in a lot of the revenue. Right. And so we're, we're held accountable but not given control of our frontline conditions. So that's something you have to take into uh, account. Uh, we would like a way, as people like to hold us accountable, we would like to hold the people who are helping us, we would like to help, hold them accountable as well. And so we need to think about that as we talk about accountability. Most importantly, change. Change is always inevitable. It's coming. However, how we shepherd change and how we communicate that has to be better. It can't only be on Dr. J's shoulders, but the form of communication with just lying in the division chiefs and chairs does not work. I'm sorry, there's not enough time. We're expected to see patients, we're expected to do surgeries and do strategy changes. In our system, we don't have that time and space. We need to be given that time and space, and people need to come to us to ask how to make those changes. AHP, lastly, is a platform for us to do that, but the governance structure, the ability for us to be physicians and make physician-led decisions has to be the underlying foundation of AHP. It can't only be about AHS. It has, there has to be a place for the physician to feel safe, to feel like their voice is being heard, and that there has to be a mechanism for operational change, not just strategic change. But thank you very much for your time. Gardner. Uh, hello everyone and thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak. My name is Kevin Gardner and I'm a third year emergency medicine resident at Highland. And my hope today is just to give you all a very brief perspective on residency training at Highland. Uh, to give you a little bit of my background, I'm originally an East Coaster from upstate New York and I attended medical school in Philadelphia prior to making the decision to come out to the West Coast to train here at Highland. While the weather on the West Coast has been a little bit better than the East Coast, the true reason I decided to come out here for training was to be able to train at Highland. Highland has a national reputation for its excellence in clinical training and its unwavering dedication not only to its patients and community, but also to its residents. Being a part of an institution that forms the backbone for healthcare for many in Oakland, 
particularly those in our community who are often underserved and overlooked, is a true privilege and the reason that I like to call Highland home. I'm particularly proud of our resident-driven efforts in the emergency department and elsewhere in the hospital uh, to advocate for both the medical and social needs of our patients. Examples of this include Highland being home to founding members of the field of social emergency medicine, which seeks to use the emergency department as a vehicle to treat the social determinants of health, just as we would any other medical problem. And Highland is at the forefront of tackling the opioid academic, epidemic with new pain clinics and novel treatments approaches to help our patients safely stop using opioids. Training to become a physician in residency is about more than just memorizing differential diagnoses and treatments. It's about truly learning what drives the health and total well-being of your patients and community. That is exactly what training at Highland does so well and why we all choose to train here. But doing this is no small task. Residency training is challenging. Years of long hours and demanding duties takes its toll on residents. For this reason, as a resident, I would like to advocate for Highland to continue the steps that it's already taken to support our residents through wellness and seek to constantly seek ways to improve our resident experience. In the end, helping to care for the residents who care for our patients and community leads to better outcomes for all. While we have one year of training left at Highland, I know that Highland will forever shape who I am as a physician and a person. And I know I speak for all residents when I say it is a true privilege to be able to work at Highland and serve the incredible patients and community of Oakland. Thank you for your time. Dr. Nelson. Hey everybody, my name is Nick Nelson. Um, I started at Highland as an intern in 2008 and the longest I've been away for was uh, paternity leave for six weeks. So I'm at this point heading towards being a lifer. Uh, I, I, I did all my undergraduate medical education in the British National Health Service and when I came back to California, Highland really seemed like the only place for me because it embodies those same core values of providing care that's free at the point of access to everybody who needs it regardless of their ability to pay. Um, in 2012, I joined the faculty, and at the same time, I took over the Human Rights Clinic. And I don't know if you guys know anything about our Human Rights Clinic, but it's been around since about 2003, and we provide longitudinal trauma-informed primary medical care to asylum seekers, survivors of torture, domestic violence, and other forms of abuse. And we also do forensic evaluations for the asylum office to help uh, government immigration officials understand what people have been through as they make decisions about who's granted asylum and who's not. So in 2016, our clinic got the Exemplary Health Partner Award on behalf of, we accepted it on behalf of NHS from the International Rescue Committee. And just this year, we've joined the National Consortium of Torture Treatment Programs, and one of our physicians just got back from their annual meeting in Washington, D.C. Since I took over in 2012, we've done more than 200 medical and psychological forensic evaluations of asylum seekers, and out of those, only two people that we know of have been denied asylum. So there's a lot of new community members in Alameda County who have been through our clinic. We also conduct training exercises, so we teach residents and medical students at Highland, and we, we have an annual training that we do. The last one we did attracted 150 different providers from around the world and learned how to do these kinds of evaluations. And I think I'm mainly here to say, to, to, to express sort of like Swap was saying, a, a message of thankfulness that AHS fosters clinics like this and fosters services like this, even though they may not be the most cost-effective cost thing in the world, because profoundly they further our mission of caring, healing, teaching, and 
serving all. So I, really all I want to do is make a call for us to keep that mission core to everything that we do and to continue providing, providing and expanding services like this one and like many of the other wonderful things that go on throughout AHS. Thanks. Dr. Tian? Hi, uh, good morning or afternoon. Everybody, my name is David Tian. I'm the primary care doctor at Highland Hospital and also a medical director of two of our programs geared towards helping people with opioid use disorder. And so it's a pleasure to talk to you this morning. Um, I've actually only been at Highland for about two years and I think that I was drawn to work at Highland for many of the same reasons that my colleagues have already mentioned, where um, I did my training on the East Coast at, at Harvard, where I also got a policy degree in social and urban policy. And then um, I did my training at UCSF at SF General, and was really drawn to work at Highland because of the patient population and the ability to make a difference in our patients' lives. Um, I think amidst our discussion of the provider landscape, I wanted to provide a kind of a glimpse of some uh, a bright spot or successes that we've had in addressing kind of a, an issue of our time, which is the opioid epidemic. and. I think that, you know, I was really drawn to work at Highland because of the support of my department chair of O-Care and also kind of uh, the AHS leadership for supporting our, our clinical work. And so um, I really feel, Dr. Jamal, you hit it on the head, we're kind of, um, a lot of the frustration that we see with uh, substance use disorders on the medical service is kind of the frustration of not being able to do anything about it. And so I think that um, I saw the ravages of substance abuse on people's lives and felt like I was unable to directly address it. And we know that we have the tools available to actually do something about it. If we actually don't start people on medications for opioid use disorder, we know that 90% of people will relapse by the end of one year. And we know that if we start medicines for people that we uh, prevent death by about 50%. And so. It's not as if we don't know what to do. And so I think that um, in our new clinic, the People uh, North Induction Clinic, we've actually only been open for about six to seven months. Uh, we have a team of about 1.8 people. It's like 30% of my body, so like kind of my leg. <laughs> and then a social worker and a half-time uh, nurse practitioner. I'll say that you know we see patients, regardless of what insurance they have, uh, where they refer patients from the emergency room, from the inpatient service by self-referral. Just in the span of the last six months, we've actually uh, been referred 131 patients. We've done intakes on 86 patients, and we've actually transitioned 23 people back to primary care, stable on buprenorphine for opioid use disorder, and we have 43 patients still in our uh, in our treatment program right now in active transition and stabilizing them. I'll say that um, I, you know one of my patients was actually admitted uh, or referred to us pregnant in her third trimester, and uh, she was using IV heroin, and we actually worked with high-risk obstetrics to stabilize her in care, and over the past year, she's actually completed residential treatment. She got her kid back. Her kid is adorable, has the best cheeks, and um, she's gotten a full-time job and is housed. You know, I think that shows the difference that we can make in our patients' lives. And so I think that I bring this up uh, mainly as a call to continue the mission-based work that we do at Alameda Health System, much like Dr. Nelson mentioned, so that we dedicate resources to meet the challenges of our time, be it human rights issues, the opioid epidemic, and it really shows the power of team-based care, you know, a team of 1.8 people and the ability to make a strong difference in our patients' lives. So I just urge our institution to remain committed to that work and create space for physicians to engage in that calling. Thank you. How many of your patients come to you unsheltered, homeless? Oh, um, in terms of, I would say more than half of our patients are unsafely housed. A lot of them are actually either sleeping on couches at, um, um, or in shelters or sleeping kind of, you know, um, in kind of trailers, et cetera. And so I'd say that um, it's few and far between that someone has stable housing. Well, 
Thank you. Yes. Uh, Dr. McKee. My name is Katie McKee. I'm actually not a doctor. I'm a midwife. And is that good? Um, I'm not a doctor. I'm a midwife. And my name is Katie McKee. I'm the interim nurse midwifery manager. Um, and I've worked here at Highland for over 20 years as a midwife um, since 1999. We have uh, 11 certified nurse midwives who provide 24-7 coverage. Um, we, our work includes um, a coverage on labor and delivery, OB triage, labor management, course of deliveries, postpartum rounds, discharges, lactation support, first assist for cesarean section, clinical teaching, preceptorship of medical students, residents, and midwifery students. Last year, we delivered 1,339 babies at, our, at Highland in our beautiful new family birthing center. 787 of those births were attended by a midwife, representing 60% of total births and 83% of normal spontaneous deliveries. Of those patients, 74% went home exclusively breastfeeding, which um, helped us to meet our baby-friendly prime objectives. We also provide prenatal care and staff 35 clinics weekly at K6, Eastmont, Hayward, and Newark. Um, so I'm here today to promote our midwifery services and also our prenatal centering program in particular. Um, we have implemented a prenatal uh, care model called Centering Pregnancy. Centering Pregnancy has been widely implemented in clinical practices over the U.S. and abroad since 1995. Um, it provides an integrated approach to prenatal care in a group setting, incorporating family members, peer support, and education. In studies of uh, minority teens and women, uh, investigators have documented lower rates of preterm birth and low birth rate with centering uh, pregnancy models. Um, in 2015, we received a March of Dimes grant to implement and sustain a center in pregnancy program in the women's clinic here at K6 at Highland. And last year, we had 18 centering groups in English and Spanish and close to 200 participants overall. Um, as I said, centering pregnancy is known to reduce preterm birth rates by 30%, and our preterm birth rate for our centering patients was 4.2% last year compared with Alameda County rate of 8.7. Um, and that's sort of it. You know, Metro Dimes grant, grant has just ended, um, but we um, are hoping to expand our Centering Pregnancy Program, which is now fully in place at Highland to all of the outlying clinical sites, Hayward, Newark, and Eastmont. So thank you. Uh, Dr. Wise. And thank you so much for the opportunity to speak here, and also thank you so much for the opportunity to hear my colleagues, um, because I find you to be a very inspiring group of people. Um, my name is Laura Wise. I'm a family doctor, and I work at the Hayward Wellness Center. I'm an ambulatory care provider, and I'm new to Omni um, Health System relatively. 
Um, I've been working at Hayward for three and a half years. Um, I've got about 15 years in a safety net, and this is what I love to do. Um, so I just wanted to communicate to you a little bit about my gratitude, the work I do, and just to echo my um, colleagues' um, passion for having physicians' voices heard at the table. Um, so yesterday, and thank you to Dr. Howe for giving me the idea of describing my day. Yesterday I saw, I'm a family doctor, so I saw a six-month-old baby for a well-child check who is from a mild Spanish-speaking family, and um, this baby has eczema related to her early introduction of, um, of uh, dairy products, that I think. Um, I saw a nine-month-old who is just off the charts in her development. She's incredibly verbal and um, was a joy to see. I saw a 32-year-old um, woman who has... PTSD from a prior mugging in the Philippines that's keeping her indoors with her two-year-old all the time that's been untreated for about 10 years. Um, I saw a 60-year-old with um, diabetes and hypertension that are all controlled, um, that we've gotten under control over the last six months. Um, and um, last time I saw her, I increased her antidepressant because the depression was keeping her from getting her physical therapy that will help her with her falls. So this time she was doing better, and so we were able to do a referral for physical therapy so she can take the next step in her health. Um, and I'll, I'll cut it short, but I also saw an 18-year-old um, who came in for a contraceptive method because she just became sexually active and didn't want to get pregnant. Um, so I am proud of the work that we're doing at the ambulatory care setting. Um, I know that Highland is focused on inpatient and on trauma care and taking care of the sickest um, patients, but we are there to catch the patients when they're discharged from the hospital. And I'm proud of the work we're also doing in trying to go upstream and address social determinants of health. Um, and um, and um, the one final thing I want to say is that just that my personal passion is to help people who haven't previously had their voices heard to be heard. And I do that in group medical visits, specifically in the clinical setting. But I really appreciate that that's a conversation that's being had at the AHS level. So thank you. Use that. Um, I, I just want to say, it, uh, as the uh, board president, what an honor it is to serve you. Um, your dedication is just so amazing. Um, I, uh, I have a personal, you know, interest in seeing you know access to healthcare for all Alameda County residents. It's uh, I kind of grew up thinking that uh, access to healthcare is really a pillar of democracy. Uh, it's it's one of them, and um, one of the biggest and most important. It's a human right, and so. Um, I, it's just amazing everywhere I go in the system, and it, you have a, a really strong voice in, in Dr. Bouquet, and this is really his inspiration to have this uh, today at our retreat. Um, but I also want to suggest that this is just one stop or one moment in the dialogue, and that we want to keep this dialogue going. We want to know what we can do as a board to support your work and to, to further your, our mission together. Um, so please don't uh, hesitate to come to the board meetings um, uh, for, for any reason and, and to speak and to, to reach out to us in between meetings, uh, both through your leadership and, and directly if, if you feel necessary. So um, with that, I think it's, um, 
I, I want to check in with my board. There's a pile of food over there uh, people might be interested in. We haven't done a bio break since we got here, so I think we should probably pause for five minutes. That's probably medically uh, necessary for some. Um, <laughs> And then uh, I, I know the board may have some questions. We're, we're kind of winding down, but I, I want to make sure that we can keep this as somewhat of a dialogue uh, to the best of our ability. So let's let's pause, take take five, do what you need to do, grab some food, and then let's let's reconvene. Thanks.
has Superhero Day every day yes. with the clinical staff. So I'm always humbled by my colleagues, so thank you. Um, I've been awake 30 hours, so my word retrieval is not the greatest right now. So I'm going to try to um, not forget to say the things that I want to say 
but bear with me. The, um, the UCSF Department of Surgery, and there's been a couple of slides that have reflected the Department of Surgery, and I think it's a little confusing to look at surgery on paper at AHS and really get a sense of what it is. And um, the 17 positions that were um, reported as being Department of Surgery forward slash UCSF is, consists of a lot of subspecialties, which are primarily consultants, who I greatly respect, and then seven academic surgeons. The seven academic surgeons are the UCSF part of that phrase. And um, of that seven, we are all board certified in surgery. The vast majority of us are additionally fellowship trained. Our focus mainly in the group is trauma critical care. I'm trauma critical care boarded. And I trained at San Francisco General far too many years ago for me to admit. Um, we also have an endocrine trained surgeon and a colorectal surgeon who makes up, who rounds out our group. And almost 90% of us are fellowship trained. There are seven people who cover six inpatient services and San Leandro. We've recently been asked to also cover Alameda Hospital. Now, my math's not that great after 30 hours of being awake, but it's not adding up. In addition to our clinical duties, we cover six inpatient services. We're also responsible for teaching because of our obligations to the university. And there's this tension that occurs. I mean, part of what we bring to AHS is our academic reputation, our academic experience. We bring 50 residents with us with our residency. We have UCSF students that come to Highland and we're routinely the highest ranked clinical rotation in surgery in the UCSF system, which says a tremendous amount for these seven people who are covering six inpatient services. Um, in, in the recent past, the expectations for being a level one trauma center is that we also are able to publish and go to national meetings and maintain the peer review process that is long overdue, in my opinion, because I'm trauma and critical care fellowship trained, and I want to see patients cared for in the best way possible. And having level one status affords that, but it also requires a lot of extra time to maintain that peer review process and to maintain the quality level of trauma care and critical care that require that you're required to have to be a level one trauma center. So that's administrative stuff on top of the six clinical um, services and everything else. Um, I think, you know, the, the biggest thing that I've noticed in my 15 years at Highland is that, and I was warned about this before I came over here, and people were going, what are you thinking about going over that place? <laughs> My UCSF mentors were like, we want you at Mass General. And I actually was offered a job there in Chose Highland instead. And um, the thing that I was told before I came here is that there's a core group of people that are worth their weight in gold. And that's who keeps this hospital running. And lucky for me, I figured out who those people were in the first five years and aligned myself with them. And I think that the, the biggest thing that I think is our challenge as a group of caregivers and as an institution is to start being more intelligent about our design of how we do things. Because we've kind of 
piecemealed together in guided approaches to a lot of things because of lack of resources. And I think if we stop and we step back and we start to analyze what we're doing in an intelligent way, we might not even need as many resources as we think we need. And I think the big gap I see right now is that there, is, there are people on the managerial on the administrative level trying to do that, and the clinicians are so busy they can't add their well-experienced inside voices as to what really we need to do to make that intelligent design as intelligent as it needs to be to be successful. So, and that being said, I think I've told you about UCSF and my kids' kindergarten, and that's all I can think of for now. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Any questions? Dr. Ballard, can you comment on uh, UCSF space relationship with AHS vis-a-vis -vis the discussion we just had with Alameda Health Partners? Why wouldn't you guys disjoin Alameda Health Partners? So uh, part of it is our ability to maintain our academic um, qualifications. As academic surgeons, the affiliation with UCSF is absolutely vital. And you know, in national meetings, serving on national committees, being on the committee on trauma, all of those things are things that are absolutely vital for us to maintain the work we do at Highland at the level we do, and we can't have that without UCSF. At one point, UCSF's IT department wanted to change our email addresses so that it didn't reflect UCSF, and at the time, our chair was Dr. Harkin, and and he came to us and he said, so how do you feel about this? And we were all like, we've got to be associated with UCSF and we send that out our professional, you know, currency to the other groups out in the world of trauma and critical care and endocrine surgery. And, and you know, we need to maintain that affiliation to actually have a foothold in that world and to move forward in that world. And, and I am absolutely certain that we passed level one status the first time because of the work that we've all done on the national and regional level. At the time we got this, the accreditation, Dr. Victorino was on the Committee on Trauma and leading it. And that was, that was vital to us getting level one because I've been in really good hospitals that took three and four tries to get level one and we got it the first time because of the work and because of our affiliation with UCSF. So I think all seven of those people, if you were to start to say you can't be affiliated with UCSF anymore, a lot of us would leave because it's part of what we do. We're academic surgeons. Thank you for explaining that. You're welcome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you for your presentation, Doctor. That it clarified a lot for me about the relationships. But I guess um, so. My question is. To, um, to your point that you just made about remaining with UCSF and remaining um, while practicing at, at um, Highland or Alameda Health System, how does that relate to the, the um, teaching aspect? But since we are a residency program at Highland Hospital, would the, if you were not, if you were part of AHP, would you still be um, an instructor? Would you still be able to have a be with the university? No, I mean with our residents. How, how do those things... Um, well, the, the residents 
and this is a, a slightly more complicated answer because the residents that we have, the quality of the residents that we have, and the fact that we can fill our residency year in and year out, is is intimately linked to the fact that it's UCSF integrated residency. They, the, the quality of residents we get is solely because we are affiliated with UCSF, which is one of the most renowned training programs in the country. So those two things are tied together. The re they are in, in surgery and trauma are tied to those seven UCSF, like Simon's twins, okay. connected. And it's not without um, it's a lot of extra work for us because we, we are beholden to two different bosses. Yeah. And it's, you know, if I can make it easier, I would definitely make it easier, but we have obligations to the university above and beyond our patient care obligations, which I think you've already seen are pretty extensive. And I counted up the number of hours that I am assigned to clinical care in the next 11 days. I'm required to be in the hospital 150 hours between yesterday morning at 7 and Monday afternoon, the 7th of May, at 5 p.m. 150 hours. So that's the kind of commitment that all seven of these people are doing day in and day out, 365 days a year. And if I remember, you also, and because I'm interested in that communication link to make certain that there's input into the system, and we talked a little bit about that, but as I recall, you also have, on your own, chosen to sit on a couple committees that feed into the whole. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's part of the intelligent design for this. I'm a systems analyst by training. Bob McCurzy, when I was a fellow, dragged me to every San Francisco meeting on, on systems management for trauma care that existed. And I hated him up inside and down the other at the time. And I walked out of there and came over here and I went, now I know why he did that because there are so many places, especially hospitals like ours, that need systems analysis. But you can't make change just being on the wards. I found that out the first five years, and so I, I'm on, I can't even remember how many committees, including medics. And appreciation for that input. It's, it's working with these people is, is worth it. It's amazing. And still doesn't make the job, and the, the stresses on the job any easier. Yes, sir. So I, I don't want to chime in too much here because I think this is a fantastic dialogue for uh, the, the uh, uh, physicians and the, and the board, but just as a point of clarification, and thank you for your comment as well as everyone else's. Uh, are, there, are there affiliations with UCSF for members of our medical staff who aren't employees at UCSF? And how does, I just want the board to kind of understand the, the dynamics of uh, uh, ways in which a, a medical staff that's doing uh, clinical teaching uh, can engage with a clinical or academic uh, medical center and school of medicine uh, um, that are beyond pure employment. So uh, I wondered if you could. Uh, I'm a, um, yes. 
I can speak to that. So we also have residency in emergency medicine, but um, where our faculty appointments are through a, a different mechanism, we're considered volunteer clinical faculty, so I'm an associate professor of Emergency, clinical emergency medicine at UCSF, yes. um, and so that helps my academic affiliations, and I put that on all of my papers and my research as well. Um, but so all of our faculty have UCSF affiliations, but they're considered clinical faculty members, meaning we teach the UCSF students, we have access to a lot of the faculty development at UCSF, but we're not UCSF employees. Um, but part of it is the challenge, and, and you know we've we've been very successful in recruiting for our emergency medicine residency, but it's not a UCSF. Residency, partly because we're sort of an independent, you know, separate. But I, but also I think that the traditional uh, focus of, of surgery probably is more uh, more relevant to that direct affiliation. Um, but medicine also, uh, Dr. Ben uh, is is very closely affiliated with UCSF. But I assume also in this volunteer clinical faculty status. Yes. Hi. Um for those of you who don't know, I'm Rachel Bowden. I'm the chair of medicine at Highland, and we also have a similar arrangement with UCSF, whereby we are considered an affiliate, and, and to that end, we have a uh, memorandum of understanding supporting that. Um, what this means is that I'm an, uh, uh, well, I'm on faculty, I'm an associate clinical um, uh, faculty member at UCSF, and many of our uh, faculty members, should they choose to go through the process, can be uh, can receive appointments at UCSF um, as part of this. These are time, the, the, the pathway for this is different than the typical tenure track position um, at UCSF. It's a volunteer clinical faculty appointment, which means that it's based on time served um, and um, a commitment of 50 hours of teaching um, uh, per, per year to, to UCSF and others. Um, we are uh, also home to many UCSF students during their training and UCSF residents um, through mostly our primary care division right now. We share, um, we share resources and teaching with them. Um, and I should just take this opportunity, because Taft won't do it, to acknowledge his service, um, which once again was rated as one of the highest, um, uh, highest teaching experiences for UCSF students across the UCSF um, uh, uh, campuses. Um, our GI division was lauded for their excellent teaching and um, received accolades from the UCSF uh, department, medical student faculty. So we're really pleased with that. Thank we expect nothing less of him. <laughs> so just to put a point on that, I just, uh, the reason I asked and I appreciate the responses was just to make sure that uh, the trustees understood that uh, there's a, this is not a mutually exclusive sort of element to uh, a membership or employment or contract relationship with, um, with AHP that would uh, um, preclude any form of a relationship with UCSF. It would certainly be different than an employed relationship, uh, but it doesn't, uh, one doesn't uh, preclude the other. Just yeah. actually, my, my question was kind of going to whether it, UCSF is, integ well, it is integ integral, but whether it is um, necessary, completely, um, do we have to have UCSF in order to have the residency program? Specialty. That was my no. That was my kind of my question. I mean, it, it, it's necessary and it's valuable, but I don't know how the residency works. There, our residency is a freestanding residency that's out of the East Bay Foundation. It's that that our involvement as being because we're all tenured faculty, which is different than these other voluntary tracks. Voluntary tracks. 
and it's and in surgery particularly that's extremely valuable for the residents because that allows us to have the amount of connection with the main campus that we can get them in research labs we can can connect them with mentors because we're so much more involved in the campus life and the main UC campus via that affiliation whereas we, we wouldn't be if we were not full-time faculty there. We wouldn't have that connection and be able to offer the residents and get the quality of residents because of that relationship. I just want to uh, clarify a few points also. Thank you, Kelly. Uh, I, I just want to say my patients who receive surgical care at Highland under this team get fantastic care. You know, I, I, I know that, and, and these are not, again, uh, simple cases elective cases, these are not trauma cases. I, you know, I had patients with lung cancer coming in, you know, getting their surgery and their teamwork is, is just amazing. Uh, I just want to be very clear that, you know, with uh, the vacuum, our strategy is really to strengthen, not to weaken the relationship with UCSF. I meet with their dean regularly. In fact, also I met with the ex-interim chair regularly and I met with the new chair, Julianne Sosa, last week. Uh, the issues that Kelly brought to my attention uh, last year, we, they are having, we are having two or three faculties starting this summer to help out in a more effective way. And I know that the uh, UCSF surgical program has started just serving the trauma and the general surgery of patients who come to the emergency room. but. Uh, uh, you know, I, I realized we had a problem in neurosurgery, and then we brought that program under the affiliation under the Department of Neurosurgery. And we are talking also about co-branding, you know, the surgical services with UCSF in the East Bay and AHS to deliver care at the same level with the same uh, quality throughout our system. In, in the ambulatory and in the inpatient setting. So this is our strategy. So I just want to reassure you, Kelly, that there is uh, nothing strategic to sever that connection. We are going to strengthen it. And I had specifically discussions with uh, Dr. Sosa about the career support of our young surgeons addressing those specific questions in you know, time and, 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 uh, and mentorship for publications in the areas that they have interest in. Thank you for the Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Please get some sleep. <laughs> so this is, this is for clarity, because I, I, we've been talking about UCSF time and memorial for the surgery. So uh, I hope that that gives a little bit of clarity about where that sits vis-a-vis -vis these new vehicles that we're launching, i.e. Alameda Health Partners. Next on, on, on the docket to help inform is another one that you guys have been hearing about time and memorial which is the Oak Care Medical Group. This uh, nice gentleman, uh, who, you, who many of you met in different forms, yes. is Dr. Bob Savio. He is the president of Oak Care Medical Group. Um, uh, he's created a handout for us, um, I, and I, uh, we're going to keep moving along and uh, engage this dialogue. Bob, right in the middle. Oh, <laughs> the hot spot here. So thank you very much. Um, so my name is Bob Savvy. I'm a pediatrician and I'm the current president of Oak Hill Medical Group. Again, I want to um, echo the thanks to the Board of Trustees for your dedication to the health system and to the patients that we're so honored to serve. Um, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to share my passion about our health system and also my passion about Oak Care, our medical group. 
I'm going to share my personal history briefly with AHS because I think it's representative, as you've heard, of, of uh, attachment and service to our community. Then I'm going to share an overview of the medical group's history and governance. I have a one-page handout. I'm just going to touch on a few of the highlights. Um, finally, I want to share my optimism for the road ahead for our medical system and our, our physician corps. I came to Oakland 23 years ago because of Oakland, because of Highland's national reputation for training. My wife came down here to train at Highland in surgery. I had friends that came to the ER program in the same year. I trained at Children's Oakland, rotated through here as a resident, and knew I wanted this to be my home. So from the late 1990s, I've been here 20 plus years, love the place. Uh, my wife and I had our three children here. We wouldn't have had our care anywhere else. We're a Highland family through and through. And every time we drive by, my kids are like, that's my hospital, that's not your hospital. <laughs> and touche to that. We remember where we were born, right? Um, so now just to kind of take through a couple of the highlights of the form I handed out. Um, History and Governance Oak Care was started about the same time, 1995, and when the medical center at that time, ACMC, asked groups, small groups to come together and become a contracting vehicle. We're a for-profit professional corporation that's owned by the physician shareholders. Our board of directors is elected by the shareholders. The specialties that we um, oversee in our group is emergency medicine now at all three campuses, OBGYN, which is at the wellness centers in two of the campuses, pediatrics, adult medicine, most of the adult subspecialty care through the system. As you've heard and you heard from some of our trainees, we are incredibly proud of our teaching programs in internal medicine and ER. The leadership structure, as you see, the board of directors, um, we have several committees, the executive committee, which takes care of day-to-day -day operations, our finance committee, we have a quality committee and an HR committee. I'm the current president and our CEO reports to me, I report to our board of directors. Our care physicians are really system leaders. We're embedded through the system. The majority of medical committees at the core are chaired by care physicians. The majority percentage of people on most of the committees at the core are care physicians. Um, we are very aligned with our mission, as you can read the mission statement, um, with the AHS mission. Our core values, physician self-governance is really one of our core, core values. We're integrated, we deal with each other across subspecialties very well, we're committed to improving quality, we're very engaged in community, as you heard from our, our um, wonderful ER resident who spoke. Um, our current contract, we have over near about 130 current FTEs. The number is changing rapidly with the um, ER role at San Leandro Hospital and Alameda Hospital. Um, over 100 directly employed contractors, I'm sorry, directly employed physicians, about another 100 contractors, total of about 200 physicians. The average length of service is over 10 years. If you do the math, we have over a 1,000 physician year service to the system. So much has changed since Oak Care began. Um, Alameda Medical Center is now AHS. It's a growing system. The move to population health, we're starting to do open access scheduling. We're moving towards EPIC. There are so many positive steps. There's so much positive momentum that's very exciting. Um, challenges have changed, but our group's dedication and our unity is not. 
our core value of physician governance hasn't wavered. It unifies us. It's our secret sauce. It empowers us um, and it's been a key to our success. We are a collegial and passionate group. Um, and I'd like to invite any member of the Board of Trustees to attend our, our Board of Trustees meetings so you can get a sense of our mission and our commitment, engagement, and accountability. So please let me know if you have any interest or ability at any point to attend and join us. A physician group partnership with the health system is what I believe we all want, regardless of our current medical group. As we began unification discussions with AHP, um, our CMO, Dr. Jamal Dean, held up Kaiser as a model of wonderful relationship between system and physician group. Um, and I believe uh, you, you had brought up the Kaiser model. Um, the, uh, the model that they have has been successful and they are moving on population health and it ha they are empowered and they are growing and they really are thriving. Um, TPMG is a true partnership. The providers are shareholder owners. They're incentivized to achieve productivity and quality goals, just like OCARE in our contract. Both parties are held accountable in the relationship. It's a bi-directional, accountable relationship. And they're able to deliver amazing care. Under Nick Purney's leadership, AHP and OCARE have been making great strides to do some increased operational integration. OCARE's role in staffing the ERs at San Leandro and Alameda Hospital is an incredible step in this for the system, a systematization of really a premier service line. Um, Mr. Finley, in making the decision to pivot from sounds to engage OCARE, we were thrilled and grateful for the opportunity. It's the right thing for the system. The start is rocky. In a few months, it's going to be amazing. In a year or two, it's going to be an unbelievable system of ERs that's going to serve our community in the East Bay. We're working really hard, and I'm very confident that we're going to over-deliver. Um, as I shared, that was a great leadership pivot, and I also really want to commend uh, Mr. Finley and the team for engaging physicians in the choice to pivot away from our many dysfunctional e, uh, EHR systems to EPIC. That is going to be transformational. You keep hearing data, data, data. We're going to get there. We're on the path to get there. That was a great pivot. Um, and as I shared, I think the next most crucial pivot is from the structure and current governance of AHP, which I think he, uh, Mr. Finley likewise inherited to an empowered and unified medical model that I think we can all achieve. OCARE has the support of the providers that are so dedicated to our system. An engaged, accountable, empowered medical group with a true partnership with the medical system is within our reach. We appreciate the opportunity and I think we should get moving on it. And I appreciate our relationship with AHP and the path forward. Thanks. Uh, as I always say, full disclosure, I am a member of OCARE, so I'm going to not engage in this dialogue and let the board uh, pursue as they like. Really? <laughs> 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 
Well, I know you're from Oakland because you said special sauce. <laughs> yeah, I've been here half my life. Yeah, that's, a, that's an Oakland thing. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Um, so, yeah, it, as I understand the relationship, then, uh, the, the, the relationship between AHP and Oak Care is a developing but positive one. But your doctors are the largest group that is working through AHP to serve our patients. I mean, you're already serving our patients, but now you're doing it through AHP. Correct? Correct. Okay. With this last contract about uh, last summer. Right. And so when we, I mean, and forgive me, but when we approve a contract with Oak Care, um, because you represent such a large group, it's, it's, it's almost like when we're approving a union contract, but for doctors. Is that fair to say? It's uh, because of the size and breadth yeah. of the contract? Yeah. Okay. Um, and... Uh, Yes. Yeah. We don't. I, I don't. I don't know that we, as a board, are as um, involved in some of the nuances of the contract negotiation or the, or the the steps that get us to where we get to. And, and I don't know if this is a non-open session item or not because I'm talking about a contract. But um, I, I know that we often get updates on contract negotiations regarding labor, but not necessarily as much about. Our, our providers. Um, is, uh, that, is that safe to say? I think because you don't sit on finance, now that you're on finance, oh, that's there's true. a whole lot of that that's into true. finance. And so that, at the that, finance committee, there was a whole conversation of what, with what, with what they were asking and we had to pull it back and then it came forward. Okay. And so there was, I think there was a lot of board information. That's before finance. I was on finance. Thank right. Thank mm -hmm. you for that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, I, yeah. I have a question because I, I'm not always understanding when we look at um, patient satisfaction and some of the benchmarks and all those things. Uh, how does the how does uh, AHP and Oak Care uh, are are those patient satisfaction a reflection of what you do? And if that's the case. How do you assess your own effectiveness and your own quality of service? Thank you. I, I think uh, we do own quality of care and patient satisfaction. Operations obviously play into that to a degree. Our current contract does have incentives um, across each of our service lines, internal medicine, ER, what was maternal child health, which is now OB and pediatrics. So in every one of those areas, patient satisfaction scores are tied to real dollars in our contract. Um, we take patient satisfaction scores very strongly, so I think that's one of those things that you would sense the, the ownership and accountability in our discussions within our board of, uh, within our board of directors. So th those patient satisfaction results, is that, is that separate than the ones we see that's global for the organization? Or, or do you have your own separate satisfaction survey? No, we, we use the um, metrics from the AHS. So we're fed the data from AHS looking at that patient satisfaction. That's the data that we're, we're using to look at. So how does that, because it seems such a wide, I mean, it's like attributing in my field, attributing all the things that happen to improving reading. And I, I'm trying to understand how that is selectively you as a care or AHP versus the nurses and the hospital and the system and all the other things. Yeah. Can I? 
can I help a little bit? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, uh, Trustee Lawrence, uh, so the score that you see on our dashboard is a is the summary score, so roll up of uh, the overall score that the, the survey that patients get uh, have a lot of um, questions. And one of those questions is on a scale of nine to ten, how would you rate the care that you received at the organization? So that's a summary question. The care from a specific doctor. No, overall your care overall experience within okay. within your care episode. Okay. So. Within that, though, there are a set of questions about how is the communication with the nurses, how is the communication with the doctors, how well do people explain your medicine, uh, medications, uh, how well do they address your pain, a couple of other questions. A lot of them are what we call nursing-sensitive indicators, but some of them are also provider-centric. Um, to the extent that that experience and that score can be con connected directly to a an area of the organization for which that person received care, then it lends itself more, more neatly to it being tied to uh, the care team that may be uh, particular for an area. So for, exa for example, if a patient only came in for an ER visit and they got a survey for that visit, then when they talk about the communications with providers, they're talking about the ER docs. And the ER docs in this case would be the Oak Care ER docs. It may be, you know, they interacted with a radiologist or interacted with a, a, a lab medicine uh, physician or some other specialist that was consulted, but by and large it's, it's, it's attributable to that provider who took care of them. In a teaching facility, it becomes difficult because it may be a couple of providers, but in this case, for the most part, it's a uniform group. So in the case of Oak here, if they were looking at schools for experience at Highland, they could presume that the vast majority of that is associated with their providers. Uh, whereas at San Leandro or Alameda, I'll use Alameda for example, it may be uh, the hospitalists that are the AIM providers. Um, if it's the ED group now, it'll be the ED physicians at, um, or the Oak Care physicians at San Leandro or Alameda. So, so there's a way to look at it as a group. There's a way if you, uh, uh, or in, in some cases, I don't know if all cases we can do this, and you drill down to uh, the actual patient who provided that, uh, that feedback, you can then know which provider actually uh, took care of that patient to provide uh, feedback. That that I appreciate that clarification. Sure. Uh, then, tell me the connection then to the incentive piece. So the, the scores writ large and whatever that particular piece is, and I'll, I'll yield to Dr. Jamaluddin because he's more intimately involved in the contract negotiation itself, but, but if there are scores for quality, for safety, for patient experience, for the organization, and in this case you have uh, one group that has uh, a, a preponderance of the clinical care in the organization, particularly on the inpatient side, uh, uh, and the side, then you can actually tie then your performance along various indicators. Uh, it's a negotiation for whichever indicators make the most sense and our ability to actually track those and, and so tie those. So you have the ability to disaggregate that data to such a, such a, a uh, well, it's, that uh, enough that it's a rollout. No, it's not, no, it doesn't drill down to, to remember this yeah, is a multi-specialty contract. This is a multi-specialty contract, so we don't have to, and when, you, when you get to that particular component of it, you don't necessarily have to drive down to that level. You can look at overall recognizing that uh, uh, the providers are but one part of the delivery infrastructure, but but you say you have a, you have a significant role in driving these scores, and so we basically 
swim or sink together. So it is not necessarily something where you can say your score is directly related exclusively to your performance, but the, the success of the organization is attributable to our performance and yours. So that is the incentive, because you have my biases on incentives. Um, uh, are the incentives then tied to the organization as a whole? Yes. So everybody gets an incentive? No. Yeah. The incentives that are in this particular contract for this group of providers are tied to the success of the organization as a whole. We wanted to demonstrate skin in the game. Yeah. So even though the data is imperfect, we wanted to say quality incentives matter. We can move the dial. Yeah. Okay, thank you. I just, you go. somebody's got a poke. <laughs> had a question. Um, so as you're, you know, thank you for being so clear about, you know, your vision to of this partnership that you see that you want to be shared, you know, a real true partnership where the, and so as OK is considering, you know, you have this, your own governance structure and it's very, it's a, it's a mature organization as you're thinking about this kind of partnership. What are some aspirational thing that you hope because you are building the plane as you fly it so you can inform a lot about that kind of, you know, governance structure or true partnership with the system where it's bi-directional, right? So you're, you're hoping to get that. What are some things that bubble to your surface that you would like AHP to be? Yeah, so uh, as, a, as an employer. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think true aspiration, my nirvana vision, and I think of most of the people in all the various contracts, becoming one unified medical group as much as we can be, mm -hmm. all wearing the same uniform is the goal. Mm -hmm. I think the current real obstacle is governance. So I'm um, very appreciative of, of Mr. Finley for supporting Nick and I in exploring not just evolving the governance of AHP, but also looking at creating a model that is maybe not O-Care, not AHP, but a model that would really bring in all these other contracts. Mm -hmm. Bring the passion, the power of, of an empowered medical group like Kaiser that really does have a bi-directional accountability. We sink or swim together. Mm -hmm. This is our population. This is where we want to be. Mm -hmm. Thank you. We'll keep that highlight that and keep those. I, I think that Kaiser model is a model that really holds up, and they are delivering. To me, the movement towards population health is incredible. It's going to be clunky, but that is doing the right thing. That is doing great medicine, and I think we can get there. I know we can get there. Thank you. Thank you. I think part of the challenge is. Sort of recognizing the, the strengths, uh, recognizing the strengths in each of the models, um, and figuring out what you, which you know what are the benefits of them overall. Um, you know, Bob mentioned the Kaiser model. The Kaiser model is a like it is a single contract entity, and only contracts with the Kaiser Foundation, who owns the hospitals and everybody else. Um, but every single person on the board for Kaiser Permanente Medical Group is a physician, every hundred percent. Other facilities choose to be a, a, a solely owned subsidiary, and so maybe there are other advantages to that. But I think that's part of the, the dialogue that I think that Bob and Nick are having. Um, you know, the Mayo Group is largely physician-run, definitely physician majority. The Maricopa Group, which is the county safety net hospital in Phoenix, 
very much physician run. Um, so I mean, it's just an interesting model, sort of like figuring out the, the benefits of which model is best served um, to our system and our population. But I think that's 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 part of the interesting sort of dynamic, and I'm really glad that, that these discussions are, are happening. Dr. Brian? Yeah, I was going to say, I'm optimistic that our <coughs> next alignment meetings will be um, more interesting. More interesting, and, and more interesting and productive than some of our prior ones that are trying to wrestle with the government's model. I, I do think that one of the parts that's been missing from this conversation is recognizing that whenever you have a partnership situation, whether the group underneath is you know, wholly owned for, a wholly owned um, subsidiary or in another case, for example, like a for-profit organization like TPMG, which is owned exclusively by the physician, there still needs to be a connection between that entity and the partner entity. You have to mediate that relationship through some mechanism. And the part that we were not looking at accurately is we're trying to compare the Open Care Board to the AHP Board. They have similar names, but they actually serve a different function. Mm -hmm. And fundamentally, what the AHP Board is doing is mediating that relationship between AH, AHS and AHP, right. and therefore the physician entity. So we can be very much physician run underneath the board, and we probably need to adjust our bylaws, for example, to address the fact that there are intended to be boundaries between what part the board manages in gross terms and how they manage underneath that. I also think the complicating factor with Kaiser, they don't report to a board of supervisors or have the accountability of, this, of the hospital to be to the county. So I think that adds another dynamic to the whole situation that, that you've set up. Um, I, I do believe, and everybody in this room has to believe, that Sisyphus was a happy man because it is a matter of pushing the rock and it falls down, and you just do it because that's our that's our goal in life. So Sisyphus model, you got to stay with it. <laughs> I, would, I would add another element. I mean, uh, one of the things your board knows, I hope, uh, is that um, while we're talking about a lot of the um, uh, the various aspects of our medical group uh, or provider uh, group right now, we're not talking about the unionized docs who are in our organization who cannot be a part of PHP uh, uh, and uh, wouldn't be eligible uh, by sector to be a part of anything else uh, either before, it used to be 2022, I think it's like now 2030 now, I got pushed out, but either way, so, so there is an element for which the organization will have to contend with whatever we establish uh, uh, for, for consistency across the organization. Uh, Unless they yeah. choose to do whatever. Unless they chose to, correct. To and we could be certified. Yes, and, and, and obviously we could have nothing to do with that. Um, um, but, as it were, uh, that is a, that is a, um, a significant element of our provider uh, 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 delivery system uh, right now, as well as the fact, obviously, that they are unionized, so there is a element of labor there that, that organizations like the Kaiser would have to deal with, in addition to uh, the point you just made about uh, uh, the public accountability and how those resources then would flow and the, the responsibility of a public entity to then transfer those resources in support of a private entity. But it, it's not, it doesn't mean it can't happen. It just means it's another it's another element that one that has to consider that Kaiser never had to. You know, exactly. That kind of thing. And, and it means then a, uh, there, there's a difference in um, making making enhancement on a strategy to completely dismantling that strategy. So I think there are well, and, and taking a different path. So I, I, I think there are degrees of 
of uh, clarity that you'll have to have as well as, because what we're talking about here is basically doing away with AHP. So the range of what they're looking at and talking about is uh, a merger that would, would then one option and the extreme option, I, I would say, in terms of a polar, polar polarity, not about extreme being excessive, uh, would be creating an entirely different for-profit group that is outside of the organization to be the unifying group to which your organization contracts. It begs the question then of what then the other uh, conversation we were just having was what happens with UCSF? Would that group then be, I mean, this group would be the uniform entity, would UCSF then contract with that group? And what role would you, this board, and this organization play with that relationship? And what accountabilities would you have? So there are, there are a lot of complexities that, mm -hmm. that have to be uh, contemplated and uh, addressed with whatever model mm -hmm. I think comes to pass. And, mm -hmm. and some of those models are um, derivations on a, on a strategy, and some of them are completely different. Well, it's very understandable why this has taken since 2012 right. to, to move this because of all those layers of complication. Yeah. But hang in there. And we wanted to inform the complexity. Yeah. That, that's the, the role of today's discussion. Mm -hmm. And just to be clear, I mean, we're, even in the foreseeable future, we're not envisioning a situation where every single physician who's part of the system needs to be employed by AHP. There's an right. expectation that we're going to have contracted entities. Oh, you almost have to. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, the, and actually, the purpose of these, of the organization, of the corporation, however we want to refer to it, is is actually just to strengthen the voice, improve operations, improve alignment. We can achieve a lot of those things without actually merging. Now, I think it's desirable that we find a way to do it if we can. I think because it would it would speak to the strength of the respective corporation that it can function well enough, and the physicians have confidence in it. And that's also part of the reason why I'm inviting all of our contracted partners to work with us in trying to make improvements so they can lease it for two years before they decide to commit to something per se. But on the other hand, um, if there's going to be, it's not going to be one uniform group of people who work at the system as physician. There's going to be different components no matter how we put it together. But, but, the, but the mutual governance issue of, yes. of finding a way that the voices can come together yes. to move the organization forward. I, I think the governance issue is in many regards a separate issue from who the employer is. Right. right. Right, that's, that's the fact. Well, then my question goes to that point. Um, and my question could be for Dr. Savio or for, um, or for Dr. Perenia or for Delvecchio. When, let's use um, the, the decision or the case study that we heard yesterday, the NICU. What if we decide to um, expand the NICU? Or what if we decide that but what if you decide to let you or, or the board says, yeah, that's a good idea, let's have obstetrics at Alameda Hospital again. So who is going to decide whether Oak Care or, or um, AHP or UCSF, who, who's going to make the decision about the physicians that are going to be the, be the obstetrical practice at Alameda Hospital? I think the, the physician should. It sounds nice to say the position should be. I was like, that's beautiful. Right? <laughs> so let's be real. There, there, there are nuances in the relationship. Yeah. As it stands right now under the current structure, the way, the way that we would do that uh, is we would go to AHP and say, and this is a the structure that uh, uh, Dr. Pernier was tr um, um, uh, projecting there to say to you. So, so we strategically look at where, what, what, are the, what are the needs of the community, uh, what are the uh, what are the abilities of the organization to meet those needs, 
and and then how how do we go about doing that if we feel that that's something we can do or, or should do and if we decide it is and that involves in a provider element what we would do then is go to AHP and say AHS wants to expand this particular service. A, look at the Alameda Physician, the primary care, uh, as an example. So the organization decided by feedback from the community, largely in this case the Alameda community, we lost the primary care service and we needed to reestablish it. We agreed with that uh, after uh, um, um, consulting with a lot of individuals, including this board, made it a critical initiative. We then went to AHP and said, AHS is going to invest in reestablishing primary care. We need you to go out and, and find a provider. And that worked very well, but what, how did the decision about um, California Emergency Physicians sound and um, O-Care, how did that work? I mean, was that similarly AHP was in the driver's seat? Correct. Or, okay. So is that Dr. Pernia's call, I guess, is the, is the question. Well, yeah. CEP's an AHS contract, so right. it was not my decision as to whether or not we renew or you know, the right. CEP contract, but right. it was largely on on me to decide how we were actually going to get through it, so to speak. Like what, and the, re, the, the reality is, is that like uh, there's a tendency to say, well, we could just hire physicians and put them in, but you need expertise in operations, and, and that's the part that we're lacking. There are no, at current states, at least back then, there were no ER physicians employed by us. You know, our, our sort of repository of knowledge is within OCARE or an outside entity. So then it came down to the question of whether or not um, there was a willingness on the part of our organization to expand the OCARE contract. Well, I, I thought that was the role of the phys Physician Operations Council, is mm -hmm. to sit and talk about whether or not that was the kind of thing. And am I wrong in that organizational chart that you showed? That is how it should operate, yes. Okay. So, and, so, and, and so my last question on this line is, what if, um, for example, AIM or um, a, another smaller group that's not listed, uh, maybe um, the behavioral health care group, or they, yeah, tradition said, oh, you know, this is great, we have a great arrangement and we have incentives and stuff, but we kind of just want to be part of HP. Is that just something you would, you would have to spend some time on and work with? The system, or would that be an AHP decision? I'll, I'll let yeah. that answer. I mean, so uh, realistically, if we have like um, something that doesn't require a significant expansion of infrastructure or new processes you put into place, then generally it's going to be our decision as to whether or not we are interested in moving people over. Okay. So. So what happens uh, uh, is is there is a there's. Um, an involved discussion on the part of the, the uh, Physicians Operating Council about not just the contract with Lars, but it may be the providers who are in said contract about, uh, and one of the things that was about whether or not they should be a part of AHP. One of the, one of the pieces that we uh, wanted to really uh, honor and uh, establish within the AHP infrastructure was that the physicians drove the decisions around who joined and, well, largely joined in terms of employment, not necessarily uh, contracting, uh, because that employment decision lies with the contractor, but, but who joined the organization. So that's been a part of the thoughtful growth process of AHP, that there is a decision amongst the clinical leadership within AHP about who comes into the group. Uh, uh, and and to, to the point that Dr. Pernia made earlier, uh, um, that that decision is not necessarily just driven by somebody purely saying, I want to be a part of the organization. We have to identify that there's a need there, and then 
there's discussion about is this the best way to meet that need. Well, then my last question is, is there still a need for surgery at Elmwood Hospital? And if so, how is the decision made to change the service providers at Elmwood So it was largely driven by um, contract realities. So one of the challenges we had with our two providers who were over there who had worked with us for a while is that they didn't have sufficient volume to maintain proficiency only working at Alameda which meant that they were in a position where they had to go outside to Sutter in order to do that, which was technically a violation of their contract. We therefore... As part of being an AHP. Yeah, as okay. part of our bylaws. Mm -hmm. So they, had, they were given a, a brief exemption, um, which expired, and the idea was that we were going to try to renegotiate their contracts with Sutter, but there was great resistance on the part of the practitioners of being able to do that. And we had economy of scale issues that compelled us to say, well, we know that we don't have enough work for two people. We can't have one person on call 24-7. We better engage with a group that can provide that. Um, but in the case of UCSF, they will not just roll people over. You have to go through an interview process. You have to apply. And those positions are open, incidentally. They can still apply for those positions if they wish. Great. But well, that's we, really helpful. But yes, we could not just move people over into another group. Makes sense. And to Dr. Savio and Dr. Perni, do your doctors work 150 hour weeks? Is that, is that I'm 80% I'm clinical, 40 in the clinic, 40 in the nursery. Mm -hmm. Percents. No, no. 150 hours, that just that's, that, that's also not typical. That's okay. a bad block. <laughs> Dr. Yeah, I just want to provide a little clarity. There was, um, I think part of, the, part of this, um, part of the interesting challenge that I think that we face in our discussions moving forward. And again, the AHP structure is, is not, not something that anybody in this room created. Like, we inherited the current structure of AHP um, in that. Um, it's not entirely true. Sorry, <laughs> some board members. Some board members, perhaps. Yeah. So the, the, the details help. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Trustee Lawrence. But part of the challenge is, is in terms of, you know, the decision, like the, the members of the governance structure and of the board. And as I understand it, AHP structure defines that less than 50% of the board members are actually practitioners from that group. No, it's not board, it's not no. positions, it's uh, interested parties. Interested yeah. parties. I'm sorry, so, so, so help me understand, but as I understand, it's less than 50% are actually members of that group. Yes, as a well, no, no, no. So, so yeah, the, the overall governing board, which again currently is composed of a portion of HS and a portion of HP and community members, um, as being a non-for-profit organization and cannot have 49% interested parties deciding how much funding comes in, because one of the big differentiators between us versus a lot of other relationships like TPMG, we're we're not doing periodic contract negotiations. Correct. We are being required to be held whole by AHS. So, you know, the, the laws of being a nonprofit aside, I, I think it's going to be a hard sell to say that everyone who decides how much funding comes in as a doctor is also getting paid by the funding stream. Right. There right. needs to be a bi-directional discussion about how you're going to allocate the resources. Exactly. So, no, and that's, I think, the, the, the challenge inherently in that, you know, a lot of that providers, and whether it's UAPD or AIM or OCARE, are 100% physician boarded. But, but to be fair, they are, but not, at the, not in the same position as the AHP board. The AHP board is replacing a negotiation between two entities. Everything underneath that negotiation in AHP is 100% physician driven. So I would still argue that even OCARE or AIM, you still have representation from AHS, you have representation from the other corporation making a decision about the allocation of resources. 
So you, you still have that governance model in the sense that how much resources comes down into the organization to provide your goals still has to have a component of AHS. The only way to move away from that would be to be 100% funded by our own profies. That's how you achieve true independence. Otherwise, you're depending upon other organization to, to pay you for re to do something. Could you have a yearly con yearly negotiating, like a, a yearly contracted <coughs> negotiated you, rate, and then every year you, get that renegotiated? You could. I mean, the, but I think the more important question is is that, and that's why I want to have a more de detailed discussion about this in the alignment meetings. Is is that actually in the best interest of the organization? Because it compromises your flexibility. I think there's other ways to manage it so that people feel more confident in the relationship. But I actually, as a thought about it, I don't think it's actually the appearance. That, I think it's. I don't think it's the reality that's the problem. I think it's the appearance. I think we're making comparison between two different entities and drawing concern from that. But if you actually look at the relative merits and look at how much strength it gives to the physicians in terms of negotiating the need, I think you might have more power, <laughs> to be honest, as opposed to being an outside entity that has to negotiate. Yeah, I think we should be very careful here because uh, there, there are, in any structure, there will be upsides and downsides. And yeah. I don't want, I would be careful about the notion being that, that you know, this sort of, uh, uh, I, I didn't, yeah, I think you're absolutely right, I didn't, I didn't make uh, AHP, uh, um, I, but I own AHP now yes. because I, I, yeah. I inherited it. And, and, that's, and, I, and, and because it's the organizational strategy, I'm committed to making it, it work until we decide uh, otherwise. Uh, and I do believe that, that uh, uh, as I've said uh, uh, privately, that this notion of, of what a, a TPMG type or esque model could do uh, has its upsides too, but it also has its downsides. And, and um, I think what the, one of the things that we haven't mentioned here is that because uh, it's not just a closed model from the uh, provider and the facility side, they also have a closed model from the insurance side. And they're an insurance model that is really based on, it's a, it's a, it's a, let's say it's a well-funded insurance entity. And so the ability for the organization to basically shift resources and, and prop the organizations up, even the private entity of providers that are exclusively aligned to them, is different than it would be in our infrastructure, and certainly would be different if it were our infrastructure then funding uh, or supporting a for-profit entity that is separately and exclusive from the organization. So I, I've shared with this board that in most public entities throughout the state of California, uh, the provide, well, I shouldn't say most, but in the larger ones, so in a major market, LA, San Francisco, uh, um, uh, Oakland, in um, uh, Santa Clara, um, the provider groups are largely either employed by the organization exclusively or predominantly, as you say, with academic affiliations, or they are one big contract largely with that academic institution. So San Francisco General, large contract with UCSF with a few outliers. Um, Los Angeles County, uh, USC, large uh, contract with uh, Keck uh, uh, School of Medicine with some outliers. Uh, the place I came from, all mostly employed with some, uh, well, all with the academic affiliations to UCLA. Uh, another facility all actually contracted with UCLA. So those are, those tend to be the models that public comes, uh, do, and it's largely because of just the nature of the relationship, the integration of the providers, and I, that was the last thing I wanted to say. Sometimes um, we sort of work at odds uh, with, 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 with our, what we, uh, I think, agree would be aligned goals. Um, part of the challenge, I think, with our current construct and what we have to look at with a future construct is the degree to which the uh, 
clinical leadership is separate and distinct from the rest of the organization actually uh, compounds the challenges for integrating that clinical leadership in the operations and the decision making of the organization because you have conflicts that you have to address at every turn and it's not for the sake of just being overly litigious about these things, but protecting the organization from what an outsider may look at as undue influence or, or undue uh, um, uh, um, um, interaction with a, a contracted entity with certain decisions that are made in an organization where those decisions might actually have a self-interested element to them. So, you know, the decision to expand a service uh, uh, on done within a uh, context of a private, private group, which then would be the entity that then provides that service, could be a conflict. And so, so I think, by and large, I just say this is very complicated because of how it started and how it has evolved. I think my personal opinion is that it, it, we, need to, we need to figure out some kind of dis really disruptive way of actually saying the current situation cannot sustain itself. Tinkering around the edges are a little... Um, uh, going to be underwhelming and I think will allow uh, existing problems to persist. Uh, but what I would say is I really do appreciate uh, uh, from Dr. Savio and others but, uh, uh, that we've interacted with and mostly I'll say uh, Dr. Perny and, and, and uh, uh, Dr. Jamaluddin that there is a willingness and an interest on everybody to try to figure this right. out in a way that hopefully will get us to a place of right. greater engagement, greater alignment. Yeah, one thing I would add in the in the discussion that you know was the precursor to the establishment of AHP, there was a long and rather detailed analysis of all of the you know potential models for the creation of the organization, taking into account a couple of things. Number one, that we were talking about an organization that would benefit you know from public resources. Two, the specific requirements of the hospital authority enabling legislation which differentiated that public agency from other typical public agencies. And then three, the various organizational forms, whether you're talking about a limited liability corporation, you're talking about a nonprofit corporation, you're talking about a public benefit corporation, or you're talking about a wholly owned subsidiary and the pros and cons of each of those vis-a-vis -vis the restrictions placed, the, the overarching restrictions placed upon the fact that AHS, you know, itself was a public agency, you know, subject, you know, to a particular set of you know, laws itself. Ultimately, the decision was that the the form, the corporate form that was you know, adopted for AHP, presented the greatest benefit and the fewest risks amongst all of those things, you know, that were you know present at that particular time. And you know, and I think to some extent, and again, I wasn't here. You know, I you know, you know talked with. You know the uh, the attorney you know who did this and, you know, and looked at their uh, analysis, but I think the point that you know Vivekio just made you know regarding the conflict of interest piece you know probably was significant because ultimately at the end of the day one of the drivers with respect to AHP was the potential of it taking on this risk-bearing organization function in anticipation of this population health strategy and how that would need to align you know, with whatever requirements you know are placed upon public agencies you know regarding avoiding conflicts of interest and all those types of things so so you know yes there's a lot of discussion about well does this model make sense and you know, and I think to some extent, you know, the answer is, you know, it makes the best sense of the circumstances and situations available, given what we're, you know, dealing with here. And we don't have the luxury of just, you know, um, dealing with a 
a, a financially independent organization, you know, we basically are looking at, okay, how do we create an organization that, you know, can be created, you know, assist, and that's ultimately the decision that was made, so. Thank you. Um, yes. I just want to say, uh, it has been a journey with uh, O'Care. I, I, I know that the contract was not easy, but uh, I must say that the leadership in O'Care has been extremely responsive to uh, my demand, which are the demand of the organization. Uh, we have established a very transparent uh, platform of accountability of exchange of values in terms of dollar values and services. Uh, the chairs have been uh, very engaged in their accountability governance. Uh, so uh, I know that when I came here from the East Coast, I looked at the Kaiser model, but uh, many times when I hang around and I talk to people, and I have learned this long time ago, I mean, you learn from, from the best, but you know you cannot be Kaiser. We can be AHS, so we have to really find our own model, mm -hmm. you know. And okay. we are going to be AHS. Yep. I mean, AHS brand is gonna flag, you know, above all. You know, where we deliver the care. We're focusing on quality and safety and on an organization, again, where we work together to deliver the care for our patient every day. So uh, I know that uh, really uh, people see in our decision-making sometimes uh, you know, change and stuff, but this adaptability, this ability to make decisions and be adaptable be like effective and reliable, this is how we make those decisions. So we are making decisions while we are listening and we are including the voice of the physician. So I know that we still have to navigate a lot of uncharted waters, but we will be able to navigate those waters you know, while we are hanging on our values and eye on our mission where we want to be, because that's what unites us. I think those are fantastic closing remarks to this rich conversation. I, I have, I, I, I'm going to leave it there. Okay. Um, okay. If, if that's if that's okay. Yeah, I just want to know how to like look it into what AHS has to do with, with you know how our board supports this or works through this. So is it that the AHP and through the CMO and things that you will tell us, or is there? Uh, a, that we will know what's happening, or do we like have a small group of our board that speaks with the physicians and physician groups through the? I think uh, well, here, here's what I propose, and uh, uh, actually, no, I, no, I'm not going to. I'm going to yield the tire for here and see what. No, I was mistaken. I thought that was it. I mean, I, I was going to say that I, I think that if you. We haven't given as many updates as perhaps we, we could, and it may be good for us to start updating you at your meetings just so you know the current state of affairs and where we're going with things like alignment and transitions and such. I think that makes a lot of sense. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, sir. You're I was mistaken. We have another group. Uh, so, so uh, I, I, Yes, and I, we have another exercise. Yeah, so I'm sad that everyone is tired. We are, but I'm happy that the dialogue is occurring. 
the last physician group that we have, and Dr. this is Dr. Youssef Youssef from San Leandro. He, he has some words to say. He's contracted to the sound group, and again, this again informs this dialogue. Dr. Youssef, I apologize. We're, th th there's a little bit. We, we spoke briefly before. If you can, you can, you can take that mic right there at the centerpiece, and just to inform our dialogue, which we've been having. Good afternoon. I am sure you are all tired. <laughs> I am Dr. Yusuf Yusuf. I am the chairman of medicine at San Leandro Hospital. Also, I am the director of internal medicine hospitals program. Uh, I am currently, and my group is currently employed by sound physicians. And uh, starting July 1st, we are moving to AHP. Uh, as you know, San Leandro Hospital used to be part of Sutter. As a result, Sutter East Bay was the group which managing the inpatient service at San Leandro Hospital. When uh, San Leandro moved to Alameda Health System, uh, Alameda Health System asked East Bay to stay, and they stayed until two years ago, providing inpatient care. Two years ago, we moved to Sound Physicians, and in July, we are moving to Alameda Health Partner. Uh, I came from Washington Hospital. I served as medical director there 14 years before coming to San Leandro Hospital. Uh, I'm so glad and thrilled and excited to be part of Arbidale's partner in July. And I say that truly, and Dr. Jamal Dean, even before this step happened, knew this is what I was visioning or seeing for our group. This is just the next logic step. It is not only Kaiser. It, the, the idea of hospitals on the entity who uh, employ or contract physicians is not only Kaiser. Sutter has it, Stanford has it, even small hospital like Washington Hospital has it. They have Washington Township Foundation through which they have all the physicians. So it is not unique to Kaiser, it is not unique to big or small organization, it is becoming uh, the norm in medical health. So I think, and actually it provides stability too. As I just said, we used to work for East Bay two years ago, Sound, now we are moving to Armed Health Partner. I think by moving to Armed Health Partner, it is more stable and there will not be any further changes. So it provides stability to the physicians, to the hospital, and I cannot see how this model cannot save cost, decrease waste. I understand there are some relations which are very tight and strong, and it is very critical to think about uh, disengaging from those relations, but eventually I think the model, and I think only the partner model, is the way to go. And, uh, this is what everybody else is doing. It doesn't affect me or being employed by a partner, whether they employ everybody or not, but I, this is just my, my thought. Being part of our system, I, this is my one cent. Uh, one more thing I want to share with you. Uh, we have a very successful program at San Leandro Hospital. Uh, I was part of uh, standardization of excellent initiative and through that process I came to know the quality metrics in other hospitals Alameda and uh, Highland. I was very proud to see uh, that 
our metrics were best among every entity in within Alameda Health System. In fact, the recommendation eventually is for Alameda Health System and Highland Hospital to meet San Leandro metrics. And I'm glad Valerie is here because this sounds too good to be true, but this is what happened. So, and actually they asked us just to keep our good work and for everybody else is to meet our standards. Through working with SAN, I was able to compare San Leandro Hostel to other hostels in California uh, managed by SAN. And again, we are number one in SAN hostels in California in every single category. In fact, when it comes to one important category as a range of stay, the difference between us and the second hostel is one whole day, which is very significant. So we are having a very successful group and we are proud to be part of the health system and we continue, will continue to be but uh, whether we are under sound or any other organization, but I'm glad we are going to be employed by the health partner. One last thing to say, I never felt I'm a part of Alameda Health System until Dr. Jamaluddin came. He is the first one who called, who met, who, who, who cares. And I was hoping you are not here, I would say no, but since you are here, I have. <laughs> but this is true, and this is something I have to say. I thank you very much for everything you are doing. Thank you, Seth. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, thank you for saying so much. I, I think this is for this board, uh, I hope that we got to see the heterogeneity of, of practices uh, which, which, which are before us. And this, I think, is an excellent case study, a group which actually stopped being a group so it could become part of Alameda Health Partners. I think it, it, uh, we look forward to your, your feedback to us. It's a remarkable case study that we can follow and, and maybe lessons for, for many other physicians within the organization. And this is the value yes. of a retreat, is this kind of, this kind of conversation. Does this feel more retreated to you? Absolutely. Are you giving me a compliment? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It only takes 12 hours to soften you up. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, I wish you'd be at your facility. I think, can, can we, should we do May? Or is the board, is the board good with that? We, that we have our May meeting at San Leandro? With the president, you can do it. Yeah, you can do it. You want to go to I know, but I want to be collaborative. Yeah. Well, that will not kill you. Uh, no, but the room over there isn't uh, fully available. Uh, so I can look into it. We'll work on it. We, yeah. We're going to have a meeting at your hospital soon. If, if we have to have it on the roof, we'll figure it out. Yeah, yeah. We don't have a big room. Yeah. It's going to be, it's going to be weather out. It just depends on education. Education. So I would like to close out this one second. Yes. The, the, the vision for this was for us to help define success for the physician landscape, identify barriers to success, and understand next steps to address barriers. Um, I don't know if we were able to accomplish all those things, but I think we got a great rounded picture of this. My suggestion for one step to uh, address barriers is to find some cadence for regular presentation at the board for, for, for our provider landscape, uh, be it at, uh, from our CMO or from our president of Alameda Health Partners. The board can discuss the cadence for that maybe every other month, uh, maybe the venue. I don't know if this occurs in quality of the big board, but I think that might be one next steps if, 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 if the board would be happy to receive that. Jeff, just uh, you know, as, as we become more integrated, I personally, and I might be mistaken, but I personally find a barrier to the system to, to have three separate medical staff. 
Yes. But, you know, that's, that's my... I will deal with it, but yeah. I think it's something that we have to look at. Thank you, everybody, for that dialogue. All right. Excellent. All right. We are now at our last uh, item wow. of the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you want time? Uh, no, we're not even close to time. Yeah, not even close. But that's okay. So, Rick, uh, come on up for our audit. Our audit. <laughs> Thank you so much. And thank you for your patience. And thank you to all the providers that, that came today as well. Really appreciate it. Thank you all for staying. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Do you want me to see anything else so I can listen to the best of I know. But this. Everyone to do this still? I know. It was absolutely. That's the kind of. Yeah, I love it. It's going to be fun. Yeah. 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 I couldn't help Oh, thank you. He probably is that what he said? Yeah. Okay. I can probably say that. Okay. There's singing in there? Yeah. I can do Thanks, Dean. Thank you. Okay. Have a good vacation. I need two teams for this event. Uh huh. So, can can uh, four of you will be one team if you can move by on. The four. Oh yeah. Four. Four team. This will be one team here. Uh -huh. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I looked at what you were doing. Oh, I was trying to get it. So we're going to play Compliance Jeopardy. Oh, oh, I invited Alec Trebek to be here for this, but he couldn't make it, so you're stuck with me. Oh, this is a contest. Oh, wow. And since this is Compliance Jeopardy, we have rules. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you the rules real quick. Tell me what's the camera. So we compare this to a game that we had Okay. So uh, our team is going to pick a category and dollar amount. 
answers will be in the form of a question. Do not buzz until I have finished reading the question. Oh, man. Points are deducted for incorrect responses and for buzzing too early. Another team may buzz in after the host indicates a wrong answer. If no correct response is given, the host will read the correct response. Uh, last team to give a correct response selects the next category and point value. And if the daily deadline is picked, only the team that selected that has a chance to answer the question. So with that being said. Oh. A valuable lottery ticket that I wanted in the writing <laughs> who, who gets to pick? So this team will pick first, and well, so after I've read the question, either team has a chance to buzz in. You have too many buzzers. We have. You know, it's teamwork. Somebody has to buzz in. Should we do like? We should put it for you. You know. Okay, so pick a category and apologize. Vada abuse for 200. Vada abuse, accidentally entering an incorrect billing code. What is neither? That would be wrong. <laughs> I mean, that we're one. That would be team. We're one. Oh, there we go. Abuse. Abuse. No, 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 no. We don't have to say you have to put it in the question. We can't go again. We're lost. What is? What? Go ahead. It's a form of abuse. In a form of the question. What is? What? What is abuse? What is abuse? You didn't ask it in the form of I just said, well, you did. <laughs> okay. Fine. Let's see how, what sort of stickler it is. Team That's okay. We'll stick with fraud and abuse, and we'll uh, keep on the category. Let's go with 100, please. 100. Fraud and abuse. True or false? Fraud is defined as an unintentional misrepresentation with the knowledge that the deception could result in an unauthorized. Did somebody press a button? Yes, they did. They lose points. That was me too soon. So we will deduct a point with one. But the deception could result in an unauthorized benefit. Team two. Phrase the question. False. No, what is false? What is false? The correct answer is what is false? So that would be. Pick a category and then answer. No, no, no. Dollar amount. Are we ahead? <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's not uh, No. For other views, for 500. Thank you. What federal law imposes liability on persons and companies who defraud government programs? Okay. Uh, <laughs> what is the false claims act? Correct. Our team. I should have accused him. He probably knows most of the answers. Yeah, general counsel. Uh, category and dollar amount. We'll stick in this topic. We'll go fraud and abuse for 400, please. 
What do you call an individual who reports illegal or fraudulent activity by an employer, government, or organization? Uh, that would be to... To what? <laughs> whistleblower. Correct. It's the only one we don't know. Wait, we would team... No, we're team two. No, we're team two. We, oh, we're yeah. team two? Yeah. Yes. Right. So pick a category and a dollar amount. What do you guys want? General compliance for 500. Okay, we General compliance 500. Why not? Keeps us out of trouble. <laughs> you. What is you? That is not the answer we're looking for. What is compliance given out by? What did you say? Oh, that, that would be correct. We were saying that what is compliance all this time? What is a compliance uh, program? No, you were saying what is you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, you, you wanted a technical okay. reading. Okay. Yeah. All right, different category. Sorry. Well, this is Let's close off, Robin. please. <laughs> Flat abuse, intentionally altering documents to receive higher reimbursement. What is fraud? Yes. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Pick mm -hmm. one. Um, can you show us the categories? Hodgepodge for 500? Hodgepodge 500. This statute prohibits soliciting or receiving remuneration to induce or reward patient referrals. <laughs> The start rule or the anti-kickback regulation. Well, just we say nothing. <laughs> <laughs> what is your answer? The start. The anti-kickback. Why don't you just list all statutes? There's two different ones. Trebek wouldn't wonder. Trebek wouldn't wonder. You just am on that. That would be incorrect. You said start but or anti-kickback or start. Do you have against team bias. Yeah, we have general counsel on this. I thought I had the chair of the product committee on my team, and I'd be just fine. And they went not even team one. Pick a category. Yeah. Let's go. Hodgepodge four hundred. Hodgepodge 400. But not well enough to answer the question. True or false, the primary difference between fraud and abuse is intent and knowledge that the action is wrong. True. What is true? What is true? Correct. <laughs> that we're going to lose this game. That is true. <laughs> How did we go to zero? Because yeah. they were negative. We were negative 400. Oh. Yeah. Yay. We're we'll we'll right category. we got time. Thank you, Michelle. You can catch up. Hippo for 500. Hippo for 500. Hippo for 500. Yeah, why not? Hippo for 500. The acronym HIPAA stands for this. Oh, I Team one. Privacy and what? What is? He can't be on there. No. no, no. Could you no. say that into the microphone, please? No. You didn't say no. It's not wrong. Okay. Oh, That's insurance, ready? portability, and accountability act. Insurance. Insurance. 
Team two. Okay. All right. Team two. You want to pick one? Oh. Uh, <laughs> Recording. Recording. Five hundred. Okay. Oh. What is, what is the compliance number? Hotline. Hotline. What is the hotline compliance number? Correct. That Rick Keebler is supposed to the answer. Or any combination of those words. Uh-oh. Uh -oh. We lost our lead big time. I know. Look at this. Okay. Okay. This, we're still messing around. It's, it's, still, it's still general counsel versus. Yeah. <laughs> Reporting 400. Reporting 400. True or false, when issues are reported, Compliance contacts law enforcement immediately for investigation. What is false? What is false? Correct. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Focus. Yeah. Focus. Focus. Reporting for three hundred. This policy states that no disciplinary action or retribution shall be taken against any individual who, in good faith, reports a problem or concern. <laughs> that would be incorrect. What is the anti-retaliation policy? Retaliation. Yes. Uh, correct. Uh, Team one correct. Uh, what happened to my timer? She loves it. You, there is a little Compliance. Besides the Department of Healthcare Services, DHCS, another large regulatory agency governing Alameda Health System. CMS. Correct. Hold on, did he buzz it? Yes. Yes, he did. Oh. Did he beat me? Yeah. Yes. He was. Remember that? He didn't say Centers for Medicare. He said he said he'd go to CMS. <laughs> so, was correct. I gave it to him. Oh, okay. You gave it to him, yeah. One more. 25 seconds. So, last question. This HIPAA privacy rule allows access to only that data required to complete the job at hand. What's the need to know? That would be incorrect. Well, you got to get it right, though. Huh? Anybody else? <laughs> it's his other answer. Uh, that would be minimum necessary. Okay. So right now we have. No, that was our last question. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I think we're regular Jeopardy. Now we go into Final Jeopardy. Well, Final Jeopardy. Oh, yeah, it's usually a lightning round. So, I mean, the topic, yeah, you got to give us the capital. Team one has 1,400 points. Team two has 1,100 points. So, the rules of Final Jeopardy are if you have negative score, you can't participate. Well, we don't have that. Uh, each team determines a wager, which can be anywhere between zero and the current team score. And we 
to write it down. On revealing the final Jeopardy question, teams will have 10 seconds to write down their responses. Actually, sit next to the mic. The resulting paper should be placed face down in front of the team. Host will then begin with the team with the lowest score, reveal the team's response and wagers, and their final score. Okay, so tell me what. What's the category? <laughs> Do your wager. Okay, what do you want? Oh. 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 Team two had 1,100 points. They wagered 1,100, and they said, "What is compliance?" Which that would be correct. Oh no! Uh -oh. Uh -oh. oh no! Team one. We're so oh, I'm worried. Worship <laughs> yeah, number 1,400. What is compliance? So team one has been victorious. over the top. And what you guys didn't realize is that we were two hour two hour old sandwiches. That too. Rick, thanks for staying so long. Yeah, thank you, Rick. Oh, so for the winners. Oh my goodness. I have a compliance. Trophy. We're really jealous over there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you were watching that on the phone. Let's get a photo of it. Mike actually is the one who's going to get this. Yeah, this is right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, participation. We're just lucky enough to be with This is America. Everybody uses it. Yeah. yeah. Participation trophy. Great. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Real quickly, we need to adjourn this meeting and open our special meeting and pass one item. So, do I hear the motion to adjourn? Motion. Second? All voted? Adjourned? All right. All right. All right. I'm now calling the... Am I, am I taping the next meeting? Yes. yes. Okay. No, no, you don't have to worry about that. This is just one item. All right. So, I'm now opening the...